basically this is the Hogwarts for killing people. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, Hogwarts is the Hogwarts for killing people. Oh, that's yeah. true. <laughs> I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're reading Pyramids, which is a book about trying too hard to cling on to the past. And our guest is comedian Richard McKenzie. Hi, Richard. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing super good. Welcome to the podcast for the first time. Thank you very much. Tell us a bit about your history with Terry Pratchett, because you've been reading him for a while, haven't you? For a very long while. I don't think I can actually pinpoint when I discovered him. Uh, but I think certainly, uh, growing up as a teenager, I suddenly sort of stumbled across these books in the library and went, what on earth is this? This is brilliant. Uh, and then just devoured them like super quickly. Um, and then got to the point where I, I, I read everything up to, to where I was at and then just waited with bated breath every year for him to bring out another one or, or another two. He was very prolific. He yeah. was very good. Yeah. Do you remember which one you read first? I reckon it would have been the color of magic, mm. um, but but I'm just guessing because I think I just sort of stumbled across them and just went. I, I must have read one and then gone. Oh no no no! I'm going to ruin it if I don't do it in order. So I just I must have gone back and just got them all and read them all in order. We've seen a bit about how people store their Terry Pratchett's on their bookshelves, and you have a bit of a different system. I noticed we were talking about it the other day. <laughs> when you were at my house the other yeah. day. Uh, they're stored by color. Uh, all the books on our bookshelf are organized in the different colors that they come in. So uh, when you guys went, oh, hey, we're going to do pyramids, I went, what color is that book? <laughs> I don't know where that is. <laughs> so it looks great, but it's a bit of a pain in the ass trying to find it. Has Pratchett been a bit of an influence on your comedy, do you think? Hells yes. Yeah. Straight up. Like I've got books with little bits of paper stuck in them. So when I'm writing at home, uh, and I get stuck on a bit and I go, how, how am I going to, what sort of turn of phrase do I need here and stuff? And I will go back and just quickly reread a few bits and pieces and go, oh, that's how you'd get around that, you know, that sort of, uh, situation in a, not necessarily in stand up comedy, but certainly when writing like, you know, longer form plays and, and stuff like that. And sketches and sketches things. and mm. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's amazing for that sort of stuff. Did you ever meet Pratchett at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. unfortunately have not, but Ben has. Yeah. A few times at signings and things. Yeah. 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 Cause like, cause uh, like in the, in the heyday of me just getting super excited about like, you know, like the, the next Pratchett book coming out. Uh, back in the day, uh, he came out to Australia and did some signings at Comics R Us on Burke Street in huh. Melbourne. And I went along and I was like one of the first people in line and I lined up and stuff. Uh, and at that point, I had like long, bright red hair, like Ronald McDonald red hair. <laughs> um, and I was at the front and he, and he signed, I think it was uh, soul music for me. Uh, and I went, this is great. Thanks a lot and stuff. And then he came back the next year and I was lined up again. Uh, but I cut all my hair off. Uh, and I got up to the front of the line. I can't remember which, whatever book was next after soul music. And I had it in my hands and he's gone, 
didn't you have red hair last huh. year? And I've gone, oh, my God, oh, my God, <laughs> he remembers me. <laughs> it was the best. I like That was the best thing ever. That is pretty awesome. Yeah. After that happened, I would have probably actually scoured every single one of his books for any character with red hair just in case they were me. I know, that would have been pretty, pretty ace. Yeah, and it's very possible it happened. Like, I'm not going to say that all the feagles are you. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do show up after soul music. They do, yeah. they do show up. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You heard it here first. Richard McKenzie, inspiration for the Mac Mac Fickle. That's right. I'm writing myself into the law. Um, well, speaking of the law, it's time to get on to the, the book pyramids. Um, and we traditionally start with a reading of the blurb. Being trained by the Assassin's Guild in Ankh-Morpork did not fit Tepic for the task assigned to him by fate. He inherited the throne of the desert kingdom of Jelly Baby rather earlier than he expected. His father wasn't too happy about it either. But that was only the beginning of his problems. And I am going to read, I don't usually read the bit that tells you how good the book is, but I am going to say Pyramids, The Book of Going Forth, is the seventh Discworld novel and the most outrageously funny to date. Which is not the sort of thing you put on a comedy festival poster. No. <laughs> it's like outrageously funny. Like it's a comedy show. We and, were hoping so. And yeah, who's and, dating a book? <laughs> yep. Yeah. And who, good point. And who said that? Like there's no there's no one saying the publisher the publisher I think they might be biased yeah yeah but it's also a bit like tepid as well to date like you know uh, Pratchett could peak right here <laughs> yeah I like your edition is a bit older than mine and it still says the same thing yeah, it's yeah. like even his later books are not as good as this one yeah which and, is a bit and, rough. and and the uh, and we found out that I've got more pages in my book than you do yeah which is weird but two less than me yes. And we, but Richard and I have the same, according to the ISBN anyway, we have the same edition of the book. It's got the same cover, same blurb, same ISBN, but different number of pages. Yeah. Really weird. It's almost yeah. like there's some sort of paradox or cloning happening, but something's just a little bit wrong. Oh, no. Mm. <laughs> Time loops. Have you come back from the end of the podcast to yes, tell us yeah. about that? Yeah. <laughs> That's what's happening. I just feel like, yeah, this has all happened before. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that because I have things to say about that. Part all right. of the book. But let's start at the start, shall we? We yeah, like yeah. to go through the plot in the order. And this book starts off starts off with a very Pratchetty thing to do, which is that he talks about... Um, God and a car windscreen in the first sentence, um, you know, as though the creator had smashed the windscreen of his car. He, and that's, it just struck me. It's like, that's one of the most pratchett things you could write. It's like, we're going to talk about the creator of the universe driving a car. So here's a fantasy concept and here's like a normal thing from normal life. I always found that like quite a lot of his books just have these very, especially at the start, these very odd asides that really maybe don't have much to do with the rest of the story. It's almost like a lot of TV shows, say like The Simpsons or Friends or something like that, where they have like a bit of a singer joke up the front of an episode. It's just a get a gag in, just a do a quick gag. A little bit like this podcast, in fact. Yes. Um, Warm the room and then... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, Here's a joke. We'll come back to it later. Or not. <laughs> but they, he does get onto topic pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, in this, well, is it you mean quick? Tepic? Well, Tepic. <laughs> <laughs> it's what I mean. And he's the star of our book, Tepic, mm. spelt with just a T for most of the book, but as we find out fairly quickly, correctly spelt with a silent P. Mm-hmm. And this book is seemingly is the main reason why on on the internet for a long time people referred to him as Terry, spelt with a silent P. What? Yeah, huh. on the on the old uh, news groups and stuff, everyone would write Terry, 
Um, and some people thought maybe it was amusing because it was like Terry Pratchett and they put his initial. But no, it's just because in this book there's so many names, including Tracy, that start with a silent P that normally don't. But that first section was really short. It's just sort of very brief snapshot of Jelly Baby, although it's not named yet. We don't know what it's I don't think he's named it. Did he name it that early? No, but no. it took me quite a lot of book to get that it was the word Jelly Baby. I, got, I glossed over it as well. <laughs> yeah. Like the first time I read it, I just went, I can't say that word. Hmm. And then I went back and read the word and went, oh, I get it now. And yeah. then that set me up for disappointment with every other name because I was like, they're all going to be jokes, <laughs> but they're not. No, it could have been. Well, some of the, quite a few of them are references at least. There's a few other joke names, but uh, there's a very short scene. And then we cut to what most of the first section of the book is about. And that's something else we should talk about is that this novel, unlike most of the Discworld novels, is split up into parts, which is not something he normally does. Yeah. He, he writes mm. in one big long book, which we keep talking about. It gives it a very cinematic feel. The only divisions are between scenes. But this book is broken up to four books, which are named progressively less like famous books from Egyptian mythology. Uh, but the first one is the Book of Going Forth. And this is where we meet Tepic for the first time as he's getting dressed up in his assassin's gear, ready to take his assassin's exam at the Guild of Assassins in Ankh Morpork. And I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's like that's the best bit. Mm. <laughs> it's this is the best bit of the of the book. It's pretty amazing. Although when you meet him, he's not very. He doesn't quite gel with how he is in the rest of the book. Like he is meant to be a very accomplished assassin. Like he has learned well over his seven years. Mm. But the first thing he does is put too much gear on and slowly fall over in a pratfall, which yeah. is hilarious, although a weird thing to do in print. But it doesn't really paint a picture of competence. No, 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 it doesn't. Although I do think it does paint a picture of he's ready for any eventuality. Like he's, he's like, whatever they're going to throw at him, he's got it going on and stuff. He just needs a porter with him to carry all the knives and caltrops and crossbows and that sort of stuff with him. He's like the kid at SWATVAC who's got like 20 folders, each one on a different minute part of the syllabus. And they bring them with them to just before the exam so they can be studying it. And they've got piles of stuff to not deliberately intimidate everyone else, but it does because you're like, oh, well, I've got three flashcards and you've got a library that you wrote. So <laughs> it kind of read to me like that. He's just overprepared and he's trying to bring too much to the exam. Yeah. It's not like a written exam. It's more like a driving test, isn't it? It's quite different to a lot of Pratchett because he's he intercutting between the exam and then flashing back to Tepic's life from when he first went to the Assassin's Guild mm. all the way up to now. It does refer to a very specific book about somebody's school days at rugby school, but uh, it, it just has that feel. Just this first part of the book is my favorite bit. Like, I, I, I wanted to see more of it. Yeah, I thought it was going to be the whole book. Yeah. When I was reading it. Oh, you realized you hadn't read it before. Yeah, this is one that sort of slipped through the net for me because I had a bit of a haphazard way of reading Discworld novels and I thought I'd read them all. So I was like, oh yeah, this one, I just probably forgotten a bit of it. But as I went through, I was like, no, this is an entirely new one, which was delightful because I thought there was sort of, except for the ones I've deliberately put aside to read when we get to the end of the podcast, mm. I thought I'd read them all, so... And I think this is actually one of my new favourites. But also, it's one of Terry's favourite bits. He, oh, really? He said that um, someone asked him, you know, is he, are you always fully in control of your characters? And he said, well, usually, but there's one bit that I wrote where I was kind of in a trance and I just didn't know what was going to happen next. And it's the whole assassin examination sequence. And it's, so it was one of his favourite bits for that reason. Well, did he do a bit of automatic writing? I th it's, <laughs> the way he sells it sounds yeah. like it. Yeah, yeah. He just didn't know. He's like, what's going to happen next? Ah, He didn't plot it out in advance. He just kept writing and, and he wrote to find out what happens, I guess. Oh, sweet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, But it works out very well. Yes. I do enjoy how 
far he stretches out the one bit of the test where Tepic tries to jump across a gap between buildings. It's very Assassin's Creed as well, if you've played any modern video games. Oh, yeah. He's running across rooftops, jumping from one to the other. He's got all these hidden weapons. Yeah, he jumps across on the course that he's assigned to take by his teacher, Meriset. And there's a, a plank he's expecting to be there, which is not there. And that bit with he's just him falling off the edge is stretched out over a very long mm. period of time. I think we have like three or four flashbacks during that section. Mm. It's quite amazing. I just like it when you take the hero of a story who is super confident. They might not have the abilities to back that confidence up, but they're confident. They can do this thing. And then there's a problem in the way. And that's when you go, oh, you might not make it. Mm. You might not be the hero of your own story, mate. You might end up as a wet smear on the on the sidewalk. Yeah. And the real plot starts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, that I can, you can see Pratchett doing that. It's very plausible. Yeah. Particularly the number of protagonists or semi-protagonists yeah. that he just He's got a lot of characters to use. Hmm. Uh, even at this point, you know, he's got characters, he's filled this world. Uh, there's no reason why, you know, you can't pull the rug out. I would have loved that, actually. Now hmm. thinking about it, yeah. like you spend the first quarter of the book setting up the hero and then have it not be that person. And then have the tales of cheese right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See how chitty turns out. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of them, we should talk about the flashbacks and Tepic's childhood in the Assassin's Guild, because this is where we learn more about the, how the Assassin's Guild functions than in just about any other book. Hmm. Because we spend so much time there. And the the students come in at, like, how old is he when he starts? 12? Yeah, I think they say like, they're like 11 or 12. So it's not like a university. It's more like a high school. I mean, basically, this is the Hogwarts for killing people. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, Hogwarts is the Hogwarts for killing people. Oh, that's yeah. true. <laughs> they do teach you a lot of very dangerous magic there. They start off with a whomping willow outside. Like, that takes out a few kids. Oh, and yeah. there's the whole like, battle of Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah, we're true. But that's for killing people. that's your first day at Hogwarts. <laughs> the battle like of you, Hogwarts. Like you don't have to deal with any of the bullshit from <laughs> Harry and Hermione and all and Voldemort and stuff. And you, you get there on your first day and that's your first day. Yeah. Oh, okay. She's been taken over by Death Eaters. Like, oh. It's so expensive to go here as well. <laughs> what a disappointment. That griffin just ate all my books. <laughs> and we have to get a lot of books every year. It's very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh man. I've said this before on the podcast. These early books are full of so many more jokes than, than the later ones. And they're so good in this section. There's so many funny things. I mean, where do you even begin? Do you have any favorite bits from this whole sequence? Well, I do like the idea uh, when they're, they're setting it up and he's sort of He's there and he's he's looking around and he's trying to he's size up the courtyard and who's in it and, and, and what they're about and stuff. I, I went to a private high school and it took me right back to that. Like, you know, first day you walk in and you go, who are the kids who know each other already? Who's been here? Like if I've come in later and stuff, have they been here for a year or two before me and stuff? Like, you know, who are the bullies? Like, you know, who are the ones who are eyeing off the new kids and stuff? And I'm just, I, like that took me right back to going, yeah, I know what you're talking about, mate. It's awful. <laughs> Yeah, I had to sit in classes with boring teachers and exciting teachers and teachers that I had a crush on as well. Only they weren't teaching me to kill people. Or in Hume. Or in Hume. Mm. Oh, that's such a good gag as well. Yeah. <laughs> and they use it throughout the book. Yeah, they mention it once. Because they, they, they list a few different words, but then that's the one that they stick with, which is great. Because in terms of the literal interpretation of in Hume, it is kind of what is happening back home. Oh, yes, that's very true. Hmm. Oh. 
But yeah, we'll, we'll get to that we'll, later. We'll, we'll but my favorite bit of the school school things is I just had to look up which name it was when Arthur comes in like sniffling and dragging a goat oh, to yeah. say oh, his evening right. prayers, and he sort of it's the the kid who's like really homesick, and he's down at the end of his bed, and he's got all his occult symbols out, and he's just about to slit this goat's throat. Otherwise, the god that only he and his mother worship are gonna is gonna come and take his eyes out. Yeah. But yeah, I just love the. The idea that maybe he's done this every night for his life, and like, where does he get all these goats? Like, is it- so many goats, <laughs> and the goats just sort of oh, takes this opportunity to leave, and it's just great. And maybe he lives next to a goat farm, and he inhumes that goat every <laughs> night, and lets the goat farmers know that the his being his god won't come and eat them. So he's maybe got like a quid a deal. pro quo deal going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, interestingly, the, the book that I was trying to remember the title of before is Tom Brown's School Days, which mm-hmm. is a fairly famous book, although not many people probably read it these days. Um, and a lot of the incidents at the school are taken more or less are parodies directly of stuff that happens <laughs> in that book. Like oh, really? There, there's a kid who wants to say his prayers before going to bed and the other kids like give him crap for it. Yeah. But he's not sacrificing a ghost. <laughs> like that's the Pratchett <laughs> equivalent. But that, there's that great conversation that happens between Arthur, this child who's trying to sacrifice his goat and has been teased, and then Tepic's trying to calm him down, and there's sort of, and Arthur's going, "Oh well, like does your god speak to you?" and and they're having that awkward conversation because Tepic's god is his dad, <laughs> because they're so Ferris. technically his god speaks to him all the time. <laughs> so, oh yeah, that's that's really delightful, and the way that he kind of turns it around to cheer him up and. Yeah, that's really sweet. Yeah, there's the line, My God can hear me anywhere, said Arthur fervently. Well, mine has difficulty if you're on the other side of the room, said Tepic. It can be very embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> but that whole section, yeah, is really great. And, and in fact, we should talk a bit about why he's at the school in the first place. He's kind of, it's been decided that he should learn a trade. And there is actually, there's a little discussion in the book about whether uh, being an assassin is a trade or a profession. Uh, what did I say? Awesome. Hang on, I'm going to look it up. It, you know, but it's a trade after all. And then his father says, nonsense, my flower of the desert. It is a profession at the very least. What's the difference? The money, I understand. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that's pretty much it. Because uh, you could get pretty well paid as an assassin. And the problem with Jelly Baby as a kingdom... Is they have no money. They are broke because they've been spending all their money building all these pyramids. Every They've been around for... How many thousands of years? Like 7,000 7, 7, years. years. Which is actually fairly close to how long ancient Egypt's been around. Ancient Egypt, of course, is not still around, but Egypt has existed for over 5,000 years. But do, they, but do they spend a lot of money? Because yeah. that gets brought up a lot that no one ever pays for anything. Well, they, they owe a lot of money. I think they spent yeah. it when they had it, and now they don't have it anymore. They're sort of getting by on credit. That's the yeah. understanding. And they also keep building the pyramids on the most fertile land, so they can't sort of make it up in exports and, and yeah. crops and that's, things. Mm, that's so right. they're bankrupting themselves in different ways. Other than just the building. Yeah. I like how they describe the necropolis where all the pyramids are as the second biggest city on on the disc or even the biggest one because it's just much bigger than the actual city of Jelly Baby, which is yeah, it's insane. So that's why they send him off. And he's got an uncle who was an assassin, Uncle Vert, um, who gave them the idea and always has like dashing adventures and turns up for a little bit and says, you know tells him some cool stories and then leaves. That's what you want to do. We always we all want a, a relative like that. I want to be that relative. You, I, I think, want to have dashing adventures. <laughs> I think you are. You are that relative, surely, Richard. Um, this is the only uncle who's done a trade in the family, assumedly, and he's called Uncle Vert. Mm. Is it because he subverts the family tradition? 
I, I, wanna, I wanna hope it is. I think yeah. so. I think you're right. Sure. But yeah, so he's been inspired he's, and he's been sent there. And as he, he gets older, we sort of learn a bit more about the Assassin's Guild and the kind of things that they get taught and the different teachers that they have. Um there's Dr. Cruz's I mean, we've already met Cruz's in there. Yeah, but I would argue that's technically possibly not the same Dr. Cruz's that we've met. Oh, I think I think we're gonna to get to this in the questions. Yeah, so. I disagree. I think it absolutely is the same one. Um it could be, but it might not be, is is the argument. Um, we'll come back to it. Yeah. But anyway, you meet some of his other teachers. There's Marisette, who's the one he doesn't like, who's the one who ends up giving the exam. You never hear about women in the Assassin's Guild, but there's one of his instructors is a woman mm. who teaches them. Lady Tamalia, um, one of the few women to achieve high office. But then none of the students are girls, which got me wondering, is there another Assassin's School just for girls? Because I very briefly went to a private boarding school and it was a boys only one. Uh-huh. I didn't like it very much if I'm honest, but we had a sister school. Yeah. So when we had dancers or if we were doing, you know, productions and things, we would team up. And I'm wondering, is there a sister school to the Assassin's Guild of Hank Morpork? We know that's not where all the assassins come from, even if the best ones come from there. I think it'd be like in Quorum or somewhere like that. Mm. There'd be just the ladies' assassin school. Yeah. But it'd be called something else. Something fancy. It would like, be the Bo- If this is Hogwarts, that'd be Bo Baxton's. Yeah. That would have been a great idea to have a, a like a sister school of, of assassins. Oh my god! Uh, I choose to believe. Yeah, I, I choose. To yeah, it's out there. It's out there. Yeah. And eventually, we get up to the modern day, and Tepic and his best mates are all taking the exam, but they don't see each other. They all have to take it individually. Um, and Tepic has his moment where he's falling down off the building, and he's going to go splat, but he manages not to. Um, gets his knives out, um, or grabs onto a ledge. Grabs onto a ledge. Climbs mm. up. Back hangs, onto the roof. Hangs onto a gar- gargoyle. Yeah, except it's not a gargoyle. No. It's Mariset. Ooh. <laughs> he's so cool. I love the um, the cool assassins, like the older ones who don't like gloat about how cool they are. They just get on with being like super competent. Yeah, because there, there's a line where he, uh, he approaches Tepic and he's wiping grey dust off his face. And you go, oh, you were the gargoyle. Yeah. And that's all that needs to be said about it. He's just going, yeah, I was, I was watching you. It was watching you, you jump and you got a little bit cocky. Yeah. It was watching you hang off there. And, the, and also they reveal that he removed the plank. Yeah. Like it wasn't an accident. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, so good. Um, but he gets all the way to his uh, destination across Ankh-Morpork. He climbs up into the room. There's a figure under a blanket. And this is the moment of truth. In order to complete the exam, clearly he's got to kill this person under the blanket. And oh, Merced is right mm-hmm. there waiting, watching. With his clipboard? Yep. yep, just quietly writing down. Just like doing. like he's sitting in the back of a car. Yeah, and that thing where he said, um, where where he's trying to figure out if it's a dummy or a real person under there. The thing, the line that got me was that when he considered it might be one of his fellow students who failed. So like your punishment oh, for like not yeah. doing well in your exam is to be put under the sheet for someone else's exam because that would be very tidy. Yeah, but. Oh yeah, rough. I mean, because there's there's also in one of the flashbacks where his parents are thinking and talking about sending him. One of them says, "Well, not very many of them pass." So his mother thinks and says aloud, thinking, "Oh, well, that maybe that means he won't make it as an assassin. He'll just come back home." <laughs> Whereas his dad's thinking, "Yeah, not many of them pass. I, I'm pretty sure the ones who don't pass." Don't just get to go home. Yeah. Well, they pass. Just <laughs> yeah, very <laughs> different way. Yeah. Yeah, they get to go home, just feet first. <laughs> yeah, he does. He decides he's not. He can't do it. 
He, can't he does. Do he, it. Uh, he decides not to do it. And what does he do with his throwing knife? He does. He no, throws. He, gets, he, gets, he gets his crossbow. Oh, yeah. his crossbow. And yeah. he and he sort of looks. I think he looks at Merisset and fires it away. But then it ricochets across the room. Yeah, and goes a couple <laughs> of times and then hits the body. Yeah. And Merisset says, "I don't really hold with these modern flashy techniques." <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, so good. They figure out that they were dummies. They were. They weren't actually real. And then he's going out drinking to celebrate with his best mates. And eating very expensive poisonous food. Oh, yeah. Chitta takes them. Uh, we sh- Actually, we have barely talked about his friends. Particularly Chitta we should talk about yeah. a bit more. He's he's the roguish. His like, dad's the merchant. He's in commerce. He's in, he's com- in commerce. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, they're like, I don't know where that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's a great character. He's that kid who seems like a bully, but he's also standing up for the people who are at the bottom of the pile. He's using his power well, but he's still using it. He's like an anti-bully. Mm. It's like you could bully all the kids in the school like you're big and tough, but you actually care about the ones who are on the bottom. So he's the one who defends Arthur from the other kids, from Flymo. Or if you others. take a real cynical view, he's selecting the ones he thinks are going to make it because they'll be good allies for when he's in commerce. <laughs> I feel like that's more of a that is probably a, more a of a, a, a better assumption about his character. Yeah. yeah. Although it's interesting, they graduate at the same time, mm. but Chitter's already there when Tepic arrives. Well, I figured it's kind of like an Enid Blyton thing because there's always the weird terms where there's overlap and some girls graduate up to the next year level one term earlier, even if they're the same age. So they'll all be in fourth form, but then like someone will have gone to upper fourth and then they'll meet up again here. So I figured it was staggered kind of like that old British system. Orchard has been there like a few days earlier and has like learned the ropes. Like he's just sort of, uh, yeah. He does strike you as the kind of kid who'd really size that up real quick. And yeah. I feel like his dad would have given him like a binder of these are the things you should know about the the place. Yeah. Here's the kid you should look out for. Like I feel like he was briefed. Was his dad an assassin? Because Arthur's dad was an assassin. I don't think his dad's an assassin. He was in commerce. So he thought mm. this would be a useful skill set to add to the family business. Mm. I could mm. be wrong. And he's also made a lot of money. So he's like, well, I'm going to send my kid to the best education there is. Mm. Yeah, because that's the, the thing that this one is that this is, this is the best school. Yeah, yeah you it's get the Eaton. best. Mm. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's bloodthirsty Eaton. Uh, <laughs> well, that sounds like they're just slaughtering animals now. I, you know, well, they were. The, so it's eat well, or true. be Eaton. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, but that brings us to the almost to the end of that section because uh, just as they're sort of recovering from the hangover of having celebrated all night, being they're about to get into a fight, and they're about to get into a fight some with some blokes. ruffians who are not in the thieves guild. Mm. Um, all of a sudden, Tepic has a bit of a weird turn, and a seagull turns up. Yep, a giant menacing seagull. His father has died. And he suddenly knows everything just for a moment. While he's yeah. in a trance and he doesn't remember anything. Some shoots grow out of the ground under his feet. Yeah, yeah, if he stands yeah, still for long yeah, enough. Yeah, grass grows underneath his feet from where he's standing. You can imagine it would take a bit of time to get out of the ground and eat more pork. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's probably very well fertilized, yeah. I guess. And that's when we know that there's at least some truth to this whole the pharaoh is Magical. god. Although we should talk about what happens to his dad because his dad doesn't just die of natural causes. He has a bit of a funny turn. And this is, um, it's been pointed out there's quite a few parallels between this book and the Gormenghast books by Mervyn Peake. Which have been sitting on my to read pile for the last six years. And <laughs> haven't been on my pile at all. Well, they've mm. been around for 60 or 70 years, so don't worry. They'll, they, they can wait. They're patient. You can borrow them when I've read them in 20 years' time, if you Sweet. like. Sweet. Yeah. Because what happens to his dad is he, he has a weird turn and he thinks he's a seagull and he tries to fly and that doesn't work out for him. And Yeah, I've tried to do that. Yeah. Did it work out for you? No. 
No. Thankfully, I threw myself off something quite small. Oh, good. <laughs> Not a pyramid. Not a pyramid. Or a, or a palace. Exactly. No. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In Gormenghast, the Earl of Groan goes a bit weird and thinks that he's an owl after someone burns down his library. And he tri- also tries to fly off the edge of the castle of Gormenghast and falls to his death. Why do people go to the top of things to figure out if they can fly? Why not try from the ground? Hmm. Yeah. If you can fly, flap your wings and fly from the ground. Yeah. Like, hmm. Why is it all or nothing? <laughs> this is a handy tip. It's a handy tip, folks. Because you'll never find out if you failed. Oh, you'll find out. Yeah. Briefly. It depends on how. No, I'm not going to get into the physics. Of <laughs> right. The- <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. But um, it's interesting when death comes for Tepis Simon the 27th. Mm-hmm. He talks about how the mortal part of him died, but the the god part flew. And so, like, Mm. one part did succeed, and then there's just the the man left behind, which is interesting. Well, maybe, and maybe that's where the seagull came from that flew to young Tepic. Mm. Like, that's the godly part of his father traveling to pass on to his son. And is there later on in a Pratchett book where they say the, the shortest amount of time is between the death of a king King and Kingons. Yeah. This is a godly king on. Mm. It's got it's a it's a huge particle <laughs> in the shape of a seagull. Who knew, we didn't know this until now, but kingons are shaped like seagulls. <laughs> Amazing, nice work. But we uh, we end up going back to Jelly Baby, and we meet. Uh, we've met him briefly earlier in the flashbacks, but we meet Dios, the high priest. What do we think of Dios? He's bad, but he's not villainous. Mm. He knows the way things have always been, and he makes sure that the next king coming along does the things that make sure that. Days, the sun rises and the sun sets and the f- water floods and yeah. He's got his routine and he feels like the routine is the most important thing. Everything else is secondary. Hmm. So his underlying intentions are good. Yeah. And people are secondary to everything else. Yeah. Like the net result is bad, but he means well in the way that he can. I feel like. And obviously we'll get into this later on mm. when we get to like sort of the, the end slash beginning of the book. But maybe he's taken on too much. Like maybe at the start it was like he had best of intentions, all that sort of stuff. But then more and more things started piling up. And then and then that's why there's so many things to hold. That's why that every hour of the day is sectioned off into different rites. And, and you've got to do the prayer here and you've got to be here and you've got to take stock of your of your followers here and so where you know there's no there's no free will anymore mm. because he's just he's made too many things have you ever worked in a hospitality job for too long because i have and you eventually <laughs> will become dios because, <laughs> <laughs> because you sort of start out going okay i can do a four-hour shift sort of three days a week and then sort of you get used to it you get quite good at it you start training people you're coming in five days a week and all of a sudden you really care that people are using the elevator correctly you really care that the popcorn machine's being cleaned correctly and even if it's still being cleaned enough like it's not being done the way that you learned it and the way that you taught it so like it's a problem. Not, not in the great manuals from back in the day and stuff. Where, Which you may have written yourself. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And eventually you're kind of like, oh, if I can't see the person who's been in this job for too long, it's me. So like. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Okay. You can't find the crazy person on the tram. It's yeah, you. Exactly. <laughs> you're right. So it's just, yeah, you get stuck in your ways in your job for a bit too much and you go, oh, oh dear. But Dios has never had that moment. No. Well, he hasn't really had the opportunity. I guess. Or has he? Or has mm. he? Ooh, maybe. <laughs> but it's, it sort of progresses quite quickly, this yes. part of the book. 
you don't realize how many months pass because he sort of goes like the only way I found the passage of time was he tries to get a feathered bed from mm-hmm. Ankh Morpork and he's mm-hmm. like it's been months and it hasn't come here yet I'm like oh months has gone by and, and they've almost been pirates yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a bit like the last uh, it's a bit like Weird Sisters where there's bits in the book where it just says nine weeks later and you're like what it's, <laughs> nothing happened for nine weeks I guess that is the nature of time in Jelly Baby nothing happens for mm. months on end and he's slowly learning that he doesn't actually have any real power like whatever he says gets twisted. Yeah, he's not allowed to show his face. He keeps trying to be a man of the people, and the people hate that. I was so disappointed for him when he does the thing where he's gonna, you know, he's at court and people are bringing their grievances, and you're like, oh, he's gonna do like a wisdom of Solomon thing, yeah. and he totally does. And he's like, well, I think you should divide the herd of cows and have half each. And everyone looks at each other for a second, and then Dio says, the king says that you shall take the cows, and you're like. That's not what I said. Yeah, but that guy prays more, so he should have them. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, that's not fair. This is, oh, and you just feel his frustration so clearly. You're like, this isn't okay. Yeah. Plus, if someone said my full name every single time someone addressed me, like, like, like it's half a page of name. It's a long and, name. and that scene uh, where they're working out grievances of the, of the populace and stuff goes on for quite a long time. Mm. And like, I felt like it was chapters and chapters where I'm going, if I have to read his name one more time. <laughs> but then I, I, I've gone, am I going to miss something if I skim over? And so, so No, no, I didn't miss anything. No, Oops. they just wrote that out again. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that scene in Game of Thrones where Daenerys finally meets Jon Snow and they spend like two minutes saying Daenerys' full name and then... Like Fleabottom, the the guy who's named with one hand, I can't remember his name ever. It goes, oh, this is Jon Snow. <laughs> it's, it's short. It's got that benefit. Short for Jonathan. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. Actually, that that reminds me. There's a bit where it's a bit that they gloss over quite quickly. Where um, and I think it's during the scene where he's giving him all the stuff to hold. Where he's like, "Well, you should get married," and he's like, "Oh yeah, I guess I could meet someone and get married." And he's like, "Well, you know, we." we one of your cousins, maybe. He's like, what? No, I don't want to marry into my family. And I was like, wow, is this, is this some Game of Thrones business? Mm. And I, but then I looked it up. This book's like came out two or three years before the first Game of Thrones mm. book. So like Game of Thrones learned from pyramids. Yeah. Some weird ancient stuff. Egypt. Like, yeah, it was like Tutankhamun was married to his half-sister. That's why none of their children survived. Mm. Not even ancient Egypt, though. Like, as we discussed last podcast, even well into the 19th, 20th century. It always comes back around to incest. Oh. Yeah. Why? Uh, this book does a pretty good job of uh, just just walk to the next town. It's not that far, uh, but this book does do a good job of of um, avoiding it. Um, not really. No, no. No, I think it no. does. No. I think it does. No, I I completely disagree. Mostly, <laughs> very much disagree. <laughs> well, we'll get we'll get to that bit, I suppose. There's a scene where uh, he's taken to see the two embalmers. Who is it? Gurn and Dill. Dill. And Dill. You know, to see his father's remains and talk. And then he also talks to Tarklusp, the pyramid builder, about what kind of pyramid they're going to build for his dad. And he's like, well, I'm pretty sure my dad didn't want a pyramid and his dad's ghost or whatever. Is he's like, not a ghost. He's just a lingering soul, which I found interesting. Yeah, I, w- I was wondering that. So that's how it's described. I kept meaning to go back and look because I was like, he's not really a no, ghost, No, he's not a he? ghost. Because he's tied to his, his remains. Yeah, that's the whole pyramid thing, I think. They're not, mm. so they can't go on to the next world, but they're not a ghost because death doesn't say you're a ghost. He's just kind of like, oh, this is what happens next. And so the reason the pyramids are built is because they stop time inside the pyramid so you never actually get to go on to the next world. Yeah, yeah. supposedly you never die, but you're already dead when they put you... I think because originally the idea was they would put you in as you were dying so that you would actually mm. never die, mm. but then they forgot be- about that. Yeah. 
Because who wouldn't want to just just be dying for eternity? Yeah, alone. Sounds great. In the dark. Awesome. Yeah. It's kind of like in Pirates of the Caribbean how they have that thing where if you have the gold, you turn into a zombie, and then they put Will Turner's dad into a concrete thing and drop him at the bottom of the sea, and he's just like at the bottom of the sea as a zombie for two movies. Yeah, it's the worst. Although I don't think that would work because clearly, if you're a zombie and stuff, like you could just chip away at that. That always worried me about zombie films and stuff where people go, oh, don't worry, we'll put a fence up. And I'm going, yeah, it's not, a, like, it's not a human banging on that fence. It's a zombie. The zombie's not going to stop. The zombie doesn't feel pain. The zombie will push until the fence falls down. And like, yeah, so it's things like that when people go, ah, oh, I've put him in concrete and put him on the bottom of the ocean. That doesn't work. Yeah, because if he's still got a human mind, he'd be trying to escape out of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. He'd, he'd, but if yeah. you're a zombie that doesn't have a human mind, then you might be like, oh, well, I guess this is life. Uh, but that, that is, this is what the sort of turning point of the book is that, during that conversation where he's trying to convince Dios that his father did not want to be buried in a pyramid. Wanted to be pushed out to sea. Uh, mm. He just wanted, yeah, just wanted to go in the sea. Uh, get in the sea. <laughs> Pepic's dad. He gets very frustrated with Dios saying, no, we will have a pyramid. And he goes, fine, if we're going to have a pyramid, we'll have a huge pyramid. We'll have a pyramid twice as big as the biggest one we've ever built ever. And Tarkos sort of goes... Uh, what now? <laughs> um, it'll cost this. Mo- yes, money is no object, and he just—he's just being bloody-minded about it because mm-hmm. he can't get his message through. But and- also, there's that thing where Dios claims that he can hear his dad talking. Hmm. But he can't because we can—we can hear his dad talking. Yeah. And they're saying directly opposite things. Yeah. What a jerk. See, I find that really interesting because they're all called Tepe Simon. Chapter to the twenty-eighth is mm-hmm. where we're at now, and it is kind of a. A thing of Simon says, except no one does what Simon says. <laughs> and I thought that was quite a good touch, if that's deliberate. But oh, it may well be. Yeah. yeah. Simon do says, know. don't build a pyramid. I think we'll build a pyramid. Mm-hmm. What? No. Uh, yeah, but that's that's the turning point for the story, because it's the building of the giant pyramid that really causes the problem. Because up until that point, there's not really a crisis in the book. There's not a lot of... No. Like, it's annoying and boring, but there's not... A problem that Tepic is faced with, aside from, well, running this kingdom is dull and I don't get to do anything because it's just run by somebody else. There's no plumbing. There's There's no no plumbing. plumbing. It's kind of like coming to America, you know, the... the, (laughs) The the Eddie Murphy film. Yeah. (laughs) Right, I just wanted to clear that up. How is it like coming to America, Richard? Well, like, you know, he he gets sent away, he goes away. To um to to well, sow his wild oats or whatever and stuff. You know, gets gets sent away to to America and stuff. And his and his father thinks he's gonna you know get the stuff out of his system or have this education and stuff. Then come back and he'll just he'll be the king and everything will be the same and stuff. The royal family is is going no nope, no we're not going to change at all. So why why has he been sent away? What's the point if nothing's going to change? Yeah, I mm. mean because they were hoping that if nothing else he'd earn a living and make some money for the kingdom. But he's not even doing that because he's too busy being the king. Because the king was supposed to live a bit longer. Yeah, he wasn't supposed to die yet. That's true. The plan got cut short. Mm. Um, but yeah, the building of the pyramid is is the turning point. But it's not the only turning point that happens around the time. Hey, there's two the more turning points. Significant ones. That's true. They go at 90 degrees. Very little <laughs> ones. Uh, but there's also uh, what happens with Tracy, mm. the previous king's favorite handmaiden, who is brought before um, the current king. For not volunteering. Oh, for not volunteering. To drink the poison to be buried with him forever. That's right, because it's yes, like, oh, no, you should volunteer. Because it's voluntary to choose to do it, but if you choose not to volunteer, then you get thrown to the crocodiles. Which is pretty, <laughs> that's rough. Um, so she gets put into the prison ready to be thrown to the sacred crocodiles at a later time. 
And so he decides he's going to rescue her. Dresses up as an assassin, goes out. He's like, I mean, it's, it's a very, it's a bit superhero. He's like, he's the pharaoh of the kingdom, but also he's secretly the superhero assassin. <laughs> secretly Batman. He's secretly Batman. His interactions with her are interesting. He's, She's a bit of a weird character, I've mm. got to say. It's very hard to get a read on her because she comes across as very kind of stupid's not quite the right word, but because he says that he likes like how like blank and empty she is initially and then when she the further away she gets from Jelly Baby, the more filled up with like knowledge and experience she seems to get, but that also doesn't quite sit right with the the worldly character she's also supposed to be. Yeah. So I could never quite get a grasp on whether she is putting on an act, whether we're seeing it through his lens or if she is just not properly developed as a character because she does seem to be a lot of things that don't quite meet up. Yeah, because she's obviously been to like a courtesan school, mm. um, which maybe that's the sister school to the assassins. <laughs> I don't, that's, that's their cover story. I don't know. But she's had a great education. She speaks all these different languages. Mm. She knows um, all of the tricks of the trade so to speak but she's also there just sitting waiting in the cell to be thrown to the crocodiles yeah like he opens the door and goes right we're gonna get out of here and she goes what but then the soul leader will get me like she she believes like everyone else in jelly baby or just about everyone we meet she doesn't question the status quo there until she's taken out of the kingdom um when tepic escapes with her i don't know i don't know if he does a good job of justifying the big change in her character like he does have that line where he's just like oh now that they're not in the kingdom anymore She's different. But there is a whole thing about the kingdom does have a magical thing that keeps people Mm. suppressed a bit because it is a bit, it's an oppressive place in more ways than one. So it could be quite literally once she gets out, her brain is free to get out of these traps Mm -hmm. in a way. So like that could be a magical thing. Though it doesn't seem to affect camels, this oppressive place. (laughs) No, 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 they've they've had uh, generations to, uh, (laughs) to expand their minds. Yes. Yeah, we get the feeling that camels just have their own internal life, their, yeah. own, their own civilization. Yeah. He never does any writing. Uh, oh, we, should, we should say we're talking about You Bastards, yeah. the other yeah. star of the novel. The, great, <laughs> the greatest mathematician on the Discworld. Yeah. And they signpost him so well because they keep making little mentions of the, the greatest mathematician in the Discworld. And you go, oh, who's it going to be? Is it, and I was kind of like, is it Leonard of Quorum? So the greatest mathematician of, of the Discworld ate his lunch again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I don't remember if I knew what was going on when I first read this book, but this time I knew the camel was the guy, so I was like, oh, it's going to, the camel's coming. And um, he doesn't do as much as I remember. I mean, he does some, some quite important things for the plot. Also, he does some stuff where I just went, that's, that's bullshit. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like what? <laughs> <laughs> well, later on, when they're trying to get back, yeah, and he's riding him really hard from, uh, was it uh, a Phoebe they yeah, go they to? Went to yeah, they went to a Phoebe. Yeah. Fake Grease. Yeah, fake Greece. He's riding without the hat, and and he's and he's purposely hasn't watered the camel mm. because he feels like the camel will then be able to get him back because it'll find where the water is yeah, on yeah. the other side of the dimensional anomaly. Yeah, yeah, with really nothing to back that up. That's true. That does come out of nowhere. Like, and camels can go for months without water. It's true. Or is it weeks? But they can go for longer well, than like a day. Yeah, because yeah. uh, they they drink like a ridiculous amount of water. That's what their hump boat. is. It's full of. It's like it's not like it's not like a green sack of water, but like it's, no, it's like all it's, fat that soaked it up. Yeah. yeah, and then when they don't have enough water, their hump sags. Yeah, I just feel like I feel like there's a one or two points in this book towards the later the latter half and stuff where I just go, that's just bullshit magic. 
<laughs> but it meant that we got to meet the Sphinx, which was... That yeah. was cool. So, yes, but yeah. we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because, yeah, Tepic does escape. And, but during the whole time where there's the thing going on with Tracy and he tries to rescue her and they don't quite get away, so he hides her in the embalming place <laughs> and she hides in one of the sarcophagi that's empty waiting to be filled up with somebody. It's never really made clear because they, they do make it quite clear that nobody except royalty gets to go into the pyramids and gets properly embalmed, but everybody else does get buried, but in sort of a weird thing, like a small thing. But it's not quite clear what, what who else is being made. It's never, it, I don't know. I guess there must be more than just the kings get made into mummies, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, cats. Cat, oh, yeah, cats. Although you never, you don't see any, actually. I th- There's I the soul t- of a cat. Oh, yeah. And there's also the cat that's under the throne hissing because it's yes. sacred. Yeah, that's when right. He, when he comes back and there's a yeah, hissing cat, yeah. yeah. But it's just a jerk. It's just mm. a jerk cat. And he goes knows. to pat it and then Dios is like, oh, but they're sacred. He's like, oh, but my mum liked them too. But yeah. yeah. Oh. You can't like them. They're just sacred. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh. But while all that's going on is the building of the pyramid. It yeah. gets worse and worse and worse. Because they've been given three months to build it, but they're actually building it quite quickly using a sort of engineering magic yeah because it's 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 so big and the nature of pyramids is to warp time and so they find that if you go into the pyramid in the right way you do the calculations you sort of travel back in time and then there's two of you in the same time frame and and they decide that this is the only way they're gonna be able to get enough people to build the pyramid fast enough and they organize them yeah if you have a a crew of a hundred then you can make 10,000 of them and you can go at 40 times the speed yeah and only pay them what they're worth because you can put money down and it becomes the money that used to be there. So they pay them 10 times as much. And the idea is that you've paid them what they're worth and what they do with that money or how it ha- ends up or if it disappears, that's not your, your fault. Oh, you gave them gone. the money. I feel like I've worked for bosses like that. <laughs> Very underhanded. But I did. I love the, the term doppelgangs. Yeah. That was so far. Oh, probably my favorite. And this is a big call, I realize. But so far in the podcast, I think that's my favorite pun. Ooh. It's, a, right. it's a big call, I know. All right, okay. and, and it'll probably get supplanted by later ones. But I, I like. But that. right now, it's double gangs. Right, that that's number one. That's right now. Oh, I love the guy. This is not a pun. So I it's just, the I, out, most outrageously funny pun to date. <laughs> yes, from the back of the book. Yeah, it is. Uh, but I'm just in like all the doppelgangers. Of all of the things that happen with them, my favorite is when the guy gets in a fight with himself over his wife. <laughs> Yeah. And then he can't remember which one of him is the earlier one. And it's, it's like just... duplicity. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, multiplicity, not duplicity. Multiplicity. That's, that's, a, that's a different That's movie. a different thing altogether. <laughs> multiplicity, the... Um, the Michael the, Keaton Michael movie. Michael Keaton film, yeah. <laughs> and this is... I mean, it's interesting because I think this is the... I mean, this sort of time travel in Weird Sisters, but this is really the first time travel, time travel, like travel into the past Yeah. in a Discworld book, I think. Um, oh, and they also there? use nodes, which is what Death uses to figure out... Yeah, things as well, isn't it? But it's, that's just using the word node. It's a catch-all term for yeah. I'm working something out. Actually, there's quite a few mathematical terms in this book that I suspect are real mathematical terms, but they're all, you know, I mean, it, it, obviously there's mm. basic sort of algebra and uh, dimensional things, but there's there's also a lot of stuff in there where I'm like, that sounds like it's probably he's looked this up. Well, I would and like t- to know whether or not, like, the camel works a whole bunch of stuff out, mm. whether or not it was just math gobbledygook or if there were actual, uh, you know, sort of math problems that he worked out. I went, oh, I think this is kind of close to what I'm trying to do. Mm. I might I might ask my mathematician friend yeah, about yeah. that. And Tarclasp 2A, like one of Tarclasp's 
twin sons or the accountant one, not the engineer one. Mm-hmm. He says he has to invent calculus to figure out how to pay the crew yeah. as well. Oh, which that's I think, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I thought we were doing algebra. And he goes, no, algebra was last week. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not good enough. Um, yeah, now I, we've got to go quantum. I, li- I like that, you know, he has the twin sons. And so instead of just, you know, the second, the, the second A and the second B, it's very, mm-hmm. it just fits the whole bureaucratic nature of their um, business. Um, and then there's like multiples of them and yeah. Um, and, and they're trying to, they, they, there's going to be a big ceremony to put the capstone on the pyramid, which just like the real pyramids was coated with electrum. That was a real thing that oh, really? the real um, okay. capstones on uh, Egyptian pyramids had, uh, which is supposed to sort of collect and allow um, the energy, like the temporal energy inside to flare off, which they keep referring to all through the book without really explaining what's going on, how in the evenings there's a flare light coming off all the pyramids in the necropolis. Um, and uh, before, when they're talking about, oh, we're going to do it tomorrow, there's going to be a big ceremony because that's like traditional. The two sons are like, oh, we can't wait until this ceremony. We've got to do it now. Yeah. And that's, so the same night um, before the ceremony, that night they're trying to put the uh, capstone on themselves uh, and at the same time, Tepic's gone back into his assassin's gear because Dios has spent all this time intervening in the intervening time looking for Tracy because no mm-hmm. one's allowed to escape the king's justice. That's and then very okay. mysteriously wandering across the uh, the river oh, at night, going mm. to the, the necropolis and then coming back the next day all energized and, and, he keeps... and full of vim and vigor. As um, he clasps his staff with like the snake eating its own tail. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, weird. it's. I don't know. It's, he's. He's. We'll get to. We'll get to the thing that drives me nuts about Dios mm-hmm. at the end of the book. Uh, but uh, yeah. Anyway, he's he's looking for them. But then there's there's that bit where you know Tepic confronts him when he's in the stables and he's freed Tracy, but they haven't made their escape yet. Mm-hmm. And he's not in the king's garb. He's in his assassin's gear. Yep. And Dios says, you know, he, try, he says, "Dios, it's me. I'm the king." And he's like, "You're not the king." You King's dead. King. Yeah. Mm. And you're like, whoa, that, that came out of nowhere. And it did. Did it feel like it came a bit out of, like, I feel like there should be more preamble to that. Yeah, that that seemed to happen quite quickly. And I'm now wondering whether Dios genuinely mm. believed that or if it was a strategy. Yeah, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out, like, is he is he saying this on purpose? I feel like he was or... saying it on purpose because Tebik's the first king to buck the trend. Well, to yeah. really sort of go, no, 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 I think I think I know what's best. And Dios goes, no, 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 I know what's best because I've set this up and this is the way it's been forever. Um, and maybe it hasn't been that long, but I, I reckon he just goes, no, I can, I, can, I can do this better than he can. But I also thought like maybe that's what's thrown him so much is he's never had a king, you know, so willful and so wayward who's not only not done what he's asked, but in fact put on a whole other set of clothes and gone against what Dios has said the king's wishes are mm. and that I couldn't figure out if he if he was doing what you're saying or if it's more like what you're saying Liz he just couldn't handle it like he just couldn't he assumed it must not be the king and the only way he could make sense of it was to say you've killed the king you're not the king because I initially thought he was doing a grand vizier sort of sneaky thing because everyone else has only seen the king behind the mask but there is an argument I think to be made that he doesn't really see the face of the king. He only sees the mask. The person underneath is irrelevant. So mm-hmm. it is possible that he doesn't genuinely, like he genuinely doesn't recognize Tepic mm. because 
And he, what, he actually thinks he's an assassin who's killed the king. And Yeah, because that's how he can rationalize it in his mind. But I'm, I'm not swayed either way. I'm just mm. saying. And we never get his inner thoughts, really, do we, Dios? No. Oh, well, not, not about that. Not clearly enough to make that decision, I think. Because he's tired and he's got a lot to hold in his mind. And so it is possible. Mm. It depends yeah. on if he's an evil like calculating vizier or, or not. He's ambiguous, which is good. You know, normally I like it when things are a bit ambiguous, but he's ambiguous the whole time. Like it's never resolved what really is going on with him. And um, and I think his ending actually at the end of the book even makes that less clear, if anything. Yeah. And I guess maybe that is maybe that is the point of, of mm. pyramids, um, that when you become a slave to tradition and, and old ways of thinking, then, you know, you lose your free thinking ability and your you know your ability to make those decisions on your own i don't know yeah i suppose like you know if you if you've been in a position where this is the way it's always been and literally it's always been this way and someone comes along for the first time and goes no i know better like maybe he's not evil maybe he's just screw this guy like i can i can get rid of him and i can put someone else in anyone else in who will just toe the line Mm, but yeah, it's a big night. There's the two things happening at once. Yeah. There's the showdown between Dios and the king, one Tipic, mm-hmm. and then there's the twins trying to put the thing on top of the pyramid, mm-hmm. and then That's... the camel gets involved. And they fail to put the capstone on. Yeah, and the camel has finally calculated exactly how to run away and escape. Mm-hmm. Because and... the dimensions start going all weird. Mm-hmm. And so the best way to get through not knowing which way is up and what's floor and what's wall is to close your eyes and hope that the camel knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I found that quite weird. Like if dimensions don't work properly, all you could do is close your eyes and suddenly it's all fine. Well, surely they're still not quite right. Like the humans felt better when they shut their eyes, but the camel could like math his way out of it. Yeah. Because he even mapped out a mathematical problem to gallop i mm. think it was at some point mm. he doesn't just go oh i should run i should gallop now he goes oh no x equals y equals c over m equals gallop because camels have more knees than any other animal <laughs> yeah <laughs> except maybe mort who's <laughs> <laughs> made of knees uh, or elbow no he was made of elbows yeah that's right it's different yeah just before we get on to the next bit it's probably worth mentioning that just before they escape when they're in the embalming place unbeknownst to them, the previous king is talking to them. First, there's a hint dropped about the relationship between Tracy and Tepic. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, that's going to be a hint that he's going to pick up later. And then three pages later, the king actually says, oh, you should probably know she's your sister. And like, <laughs> oh, you're not going to keep that a secret until the end of the book. But they don't know that. As much as there's all these references to him finding her really attractive because, you know, she's been... She's selected as a handmaiden and brought up and she knows Which how to Which is real cool of your dad to choose you as a handmaiden well, and I put did... you through courtesan school. Like, thanks, dad. Uh, and then keep you around to play, like, musical instruments. And talk to. Like... I guess that's true. But, but yeah. That's, it's probably, well, it's probably the highest status job he could give an illegitimate daughter of the yeah. pharaoh. It's like Firefly. Yeah. <laughs> Very well respected. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, there's all these references to how attractive he finds her, but not he feels a bit weird about it, and he doesn't do anything about it. And I never got any inkling of romance there. Well, there's no. that weird scene at the end, though, with the, the chaste kiss. That is very weird. Yeah. I, and that's but, why like, it's, it's weird, I think. It's through the camel's eyes as well, and he doesn't know what chaste is. So there's that weird vibe. Mm. Yeah, well, I, and I thought that came out a bit out of nowhere. Yeah, it was a chaste kiss uh, according to the camel. Yeah. Where you go, well... 
How do camels kiss and what do they think it's chased and... Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's not go there. Thank yeah. you for that image, Richard. Um, <laughs> but at this stage... <laughs> at this stage of the book, <laughs> there's no kissing. There's a bit of tension release massage. But it's not even no, sensual massage. It's just, oh, you're very tense. It's not. There's a few points where he mentions that it was weird that she took her bangles off and it looked like she was wearing more clothes and stuff like like, like that she, she oh, was yeah. not wearing a lot of clothes at all throughout the entire thing but even then it was all it was more about the fact that like oh you're just not wearing a lot of clothes it's not like it was a sexualized thing for him but then there's later that scene where she's wearing like the slightly the out of dress. season dress and he's like, oh, she looks even more attractive in <laughs> even more clothes. Yeah, he very definitely finds her sexy, but he's also like going, well, but he's embarrassed by that and he's not trying to, you know, he's not trying it on. He's and- not saving her because he wants to get together with her. No. He, like that that seems fairly clear the whole way through. And it seems like his interactions with women up to this point have been they've been his teachers yeah. or they've been his handmaidens. It stirs some memories for him of when they were doing the training for like being in courtly atmospheres and they oh. had to dance with actual highborn ladies and it was all a bit, <laughs> you know, like he was, which again reminded me of kind of like when you have a sister school or yeah. boys school and you have the school dance uh, and he finally, everyone spends time with women and they don't know how to behave. And when you're at the women's school, they tell you to make sure that the clothes you have um, have a back because men don't like to touch your skin. What? What? Yes. <laughs> okay. I think that's a lie that they're telling yeah, you. Yeah, that is a that is a lie. <laughs> but I think they're lying, possibly for good reasons. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, this is a very specific instruction. <laughs> that is weird. That's weird. Um, anyway, but I, I just wanted to throw that in there because that is established quite early. But but then they do escape from the kingdom mm-hmm. through the power of maths, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then just as they get out, the kingdom disappears because the Great Pyramid does its. Rotated 90 degrees. Yeah, it's a turning, turning point. point. <laughs> <laughs> Go back. Yeah. And uh, and the whole kingdom sort of vanishes into another dimension. And I thought that's quite neat that how they just change the dimension. So, like, time and everything becomes another factor. So, one of the twins gets turned flat because he's walking differently through the, the world. That was really cool, but it was also a little bit weird because... They're basically saying what happened to him is what happened to the whole kingdom. The implication being that because he was on the pyramid when mm. it happened, he, like he got like hold, a double he was dose. Holding the, the, the cap. Yeah. yeah. So he's gone through like two revolutions. So he's at 90 degrees conceptually from the rest of the kingdom, which is at 90 degrees from the rest of the disc. And mm. I just like to say, like, if my brother got turned flat, I would be like, okay, let's, let's just put him carefully on this table. And maybe weight him down with some things. I would not fold him up and put him in my pocket. Yeah, they fold him. Because you don't know what that would do to him on the inside. Mm. Like, because you're changing the dimensions of something that's not right. I'd just be like, no, we'll just leave him there and hope it sorts itself out. If one of my brothers got turned flat, I'd take some pretty fun photos with him. (laughs) Like they were cardboard cutout. You'd fold (laughs) him into a bloody hat, mate. That's what you'd do. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but the whole whole kingdom disappears, um, which takes us into the next book of of the book. They're stuck outside. They go to a Phoebe, mm-hmm. uh, Tepic and Tracy. Where there's um, mockery. There is mockery. Yep. For everyone except for women, children, criminals, and people we the, don't really the crazy like. crazy people. Yeah. Uh, um, they all get the vet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> everyone gets the vet. <laughs> the vet. Yeah. No, that was great. And it is, like you were saying, it's, it's not Greece. In fact, it is like a mix-up of all of the best bits of ancient Greece, like from mythology and from history. So it's kind of like a Greece megamix. For listeners who don't know what the Grease Megamix is, congratulations. You've made the rest of us feel quite old. But, but there's no sign of the kingdom. It's vanished. But inside the kingdom, 
things are not great. Things have gone nuts, which is the name of the goddess of the sky, who is now <laughs> visible with yeah. all the stars across her body. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And then one of my favorite things in the book is when the sun comes up, but all the different stories they've told about what happens when the sun goes across mm. the sky all happen at the once. And there's that bit a bit later on where one of the priests is like, tr- they're trying to, what's going on? And he's like following it. And he starts they're calling coming. it like a football match. Yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. yeah. Said like, you know, the, 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 the dung beetle is rolling across the sky. Oh, but here comes Ra. He's coming up in his chariot. And, so, and it's, and it's wonderful. And it's a great, it's a, it's a nice, it's a lovely little piece. This is really the first time that Pratchett hammers home the idea that belief in the disc world makes things go this this little slice of disc world has uh, been cut off from the rest of the world and they all believe in one thing and you all believe in this and belief here works and it works a hundred percent but it doesn't i mean it's interesting too because like what they believe is not what they think they believe like they're told that the gods are these like very intelligent grand figures who do all these important things and have control over all these important parts of life, but actually they believe that they're pretty much like people and they're a bunch of, you know, animal headed jerks. Yeah. And when they show up, they don't act like kings and gods. They act like children. They're just like squashing things and running around and fighting each other. Exactly. Don't meet your heroes. (laughs) That's good advice. Don't meet your heroes. And this is like kind of like having the auditors show up at work. Because you sort of, that's why all the, the priests are all stressing out because they're like, oh, we've been doing all the things, but oh, they're like the actual person's like here and yeah. Now I'm imagining a bunch of auditors showing up at work and then just stepping on all the pens and kicking the computers <laughs> over, but not doing any actual auditing. And then when the priests get like, get all stressed and don't know what to do, whenever one descends, they throw them into the river of the crocodiles and then sort of praise to the god whose priest they just sacrificed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I, I like the idea of the, the belief in this bit where you go, oh, I believe that, you know, the, the, this thing makes this happen or the, the floods happen because of this God and stuff. But because, you know, the guy next door has a slightly different idea of how it works and stuff and everything works now that it's just this huge mess of hundreds, thousands of gods just running rampant. Mm. And there's also that line about how, now that they're seeing it in the flesh, well, that's when your belief stops. It's kind of a bit of a distinction that some people would make between belief and faith hmm. um, in as much as those terms have various dif- definitions for different people. But the idea being that, you know, you, you have faith in something that you've never seen, you never will see, but you, you know, you have faith that it's true. Uh, whereas you can believe things are true whether or not you have proof of them. Mm-hmm. But here the idea is that few things so shake belief as seeing clearly and precisely the object of that belief. And yeah, like they see the gods and they're like, uh, well, we, we kind of believed in this, but we didn't expect them to show up. Yeah. And like you said, be jerks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. They're not, and they don't like none of them. I don't think any of them speak. No, they don't actually, do they? No. No one says anything. And I mean, you mentioned small gods, which is the sort of obvious thing to compare pyramids to because they're really the only two completely standalone Discworld books and they have similar themes. But this one is less about religion i think and more about tradition yeah you know? yeah like because the religion is the tradition that there is and there's little things to say about it but it's more about well, we just do these things because we've always done them rather than because we have an absolute belief that our way is the right way it's more just like no this is just the weight of tradition of thousands of years of having done this we've always done it this way so we'll always do it this way um and so the gods are become this very like not very important part of it in a <laughs> sense so that when they turn up they're just a bit useless really yeah and annoying 
Like you say, like when head management comes down yeah. and like, you know, onto the warehouse floor and they go, why aren't you doing it this way? And go, because it doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah. Like just because you're in charge doesn't mean you know how things work. We're on the ground, buddy. We're doing the hard yards every day. You go and sit up in your golden palace. I think like Dios's version of it is, and I'm, again, I'm sorry to bring him back to working in hospitality, but like... <laughs> Is you can make it all very functional. You can get everything working well. Everything's stocked. The money is like balanced, all of that. And then customers come. Oh, uh, oh yeah. And then that's everything's the ruined. And, but that's the whole reason you've got all these rituals slash hospitality. Yeah. But um, when the gods slash customers show up, it just throws things into chaos. That's yeah. why I do stand-up comedy. It's a one-sided conversation. <laughs> I don't care what you've got to say. <laughs> Get up on stage, I talk for 20 minutes, you be quiet, and I get off. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Come along, come to my work, and I'll tell you what's what, and then I go. Yeah. That's good. There's no, yeah. no back chat. No. You don't have to take requests. No. It's no. brilliant. Oh, my God. You don't have to talk about like how the other places do this kind of coffee. No. Go there, then. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Oh, that's okay. It's all right. I understand. Uh, oh, it's all coming out, folks. Uh, I just really want to talk about hospitality. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's come. It's all. This is the book, apparently, where it's all going to come through. Well, this is a metaphor for working in hospitality. Well, maybe it. Well, because you know, Dill and Gern kind of work in hospitality, in that they, you know, they wait on people and they perform a service for them. But Very they don't true. have to talk to them. But they do. But they though. do. They do talk to him. Though. They do talk yeah, to him. Oh, yes, yeah, in the stuff. end, and then they do have to talk to him because the other thing that happens while they're sealed away is that the mummies really do come back to life or or get back in their bodies. And Gurren is so validated when he sees like his stitching holds in some of them mm. and the bandage choices, which they've talked about earlier, mm. like some of the older mummies, their bandages just, they're not holding up. They're made out of the wrong fabric. Oh, he's got it's such a tradesman's nice. eye for it as yeah. well. Oh, I love him. He's yeah. great. Um, well, Tepikam on the 27th. Is that let's, right? let's call him Simon. Simon. Simon is off to <laughs> Pharaoh Simon. <laughs> And I love that sequence where he wakes up and he's in the sarcophagus and he can't see anything because mm. he's got no eyes because they've been removed along with all these other organs. Oh, no, where he, are they? They're, they're in the jar. <laughs> yeah. That's why he can't see because his eyes are in the jar. Because there's the, there's the lid's on. It's dark yeah. in there. And his brain's in a different jar and it's trying to steer his body. Yeah. And I love how he finally figures out which jar has his eyes in it because he just gets a flare of light when he takes the lid off. Oh, yeah. That was cool. And, he, and then they hear this sort of knocking. And he's like... Have you got a sledgehammer? <laughs> I'm going to go let my family out. Meanwhile, on the outside, Tepic and Tracy head to Ephebe because uh, Tepic remembers that they know things about geometry and have a lot of unsound, unsound ideas. Mm. So he doesn't. End, they don't end up there at random. He's like, oh, they're the ones who might know what's going on. This is clearly some sort of weird geometry yeah. thing. And they're super close as well. Yeah, because he has the weird... Mo- there's that weird bit where he sort of can slightly see this, the city if he looks sort of... There's, there's a crack. There's a crack in the rock, and, he, and if he sort of turns his head one way and covers one eye and can sort of get a, a, a glimpse of it, but can't really hold it. Yeah. It's Which, like people who are terrible at magic eye. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's this bit where he's like sort of turning just the right way to see the kingdom really reminded me of um, the second Dirk Gently book. Uh, the long dark tea time of the soul. Oh, okay. Where there's like a recurring thing where, um, uh, spoiler alert, uh, they meet the Norse gods. Yeah. But uh, in order to go to the place where the Norse gods are, you sort of have to the, the gods like sort of reach out and they they grab something that you can't see and they turn it through like the br- like the tiniest of tiny dimensions. But they sort of turn the whole world through that tiniest of tiny dimensions and then you're in the other world. 
And it's sort of that similar idea that if you just look at something just the right way or you turn it just the right amount, you'll end up somewhere else. I mm-hmm. thought that was an interesting parallel. In fact, reading this book, I saw more little things that reminded me of Douglas Adams than any of the other ones we've read so far. And I don't often see that, you know, and there's, there's sort of a kinship there, but this is the first time I've seen stuff in the book that made me think, oh, this is kind of like that bit in an Adams book. Yeah. Um, but then they go to a fee where they meet the uh, philosopher's who are shooting at turtles as per the dream that Tepic had earlier. Yeah, he does have a prophetic dream. It's another evidence that he is really part God. Mm. Um, I do like the way they describe philosophers as well. Like Terry says, uh, their brains must be so big they have room for ideas that no one else would consider for five seconds. <laughs> Which I think is something Tepic thinks about it after he's spent some time with them. Well, having said that, like I always... You know, you have that thing where you go, if I went back in time, I'd be a god. I know all this stuff and I'm from the future. If I actually went back in time, I'd be screwed. I don't know how to make things go. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how to build a battery. Like, and just like and I, just, I don't know how they figured it out. Like thousands of years ago, how to figure out that, like, you know, the, the, the earth wasn't the center of the universe and we revolved around the sun and that's so, a... That would close my mind. If I remember school correctly, it has something to do with dropping a rock with a tissue on top of it, down over, and then that's physics. Okay. That, yeah. Great. Cool. So we've, we've covered that. But I like that with big brains that worry about stupid things. I think mm. that's a good thing. Mm. Well, uh, someone's got to. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's a very apt way to describe a philosopher. Mm. Yeah. He talks to the philosophers to say, well, what do you think is going on? And it's a symposium. Yeah. yeah. And that's actually where the word comes from, is like a gathering where you used to eat. And then that became a tradition that the philosophers, when they'd go to a symposium, that's where they'd talk about all their ideas. I think it's a great idea. You go, oh, we should talk, but also eat and drink. <laughs> because well, why wouldn't you? I'm going to eat symposium the hell out of this next weekend. <laughs> and Pythagonal is there. Who's the, the this eating is pie? The, yeah, eating pie uh, yeah. and complaining about how the constant is all wrong, the ratio between the circumference. He's really the, angry about the number. Yeah, oh, it's, it is an annoying number. I mean, it's a great number um, to all you pie fans out there. I'm not anti pie, but it is <laughs> it is a difficult number. Uh, and I like that he's like, why couldn't I live in a universe where it's just three or three point five or at least three point three? Or yeah, 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 yeah. It just keeps on keeping on. Hmm. Um, oh, we didn't even mention the two. Um, Philosophers that he meets first. Oh, yes. Uh, who are the ones shooting at the tortoise that you mentioned? Yeah, they're, they're this is Prozino and Ibid. And these are all pun, these are all pun names. How can you complain about this? This is like stepping out of a pressure book into an asterisk book. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> they're great. I loved it. Um, and the, yeah, all the philosophers have stupid names. It's, it's great. And the listener guy. Oh, the listener. He's not a philosopher. He's just there to listen. And they pay him. <laughs> Yeah, so good. And there's that footnote about how listeners are so hard to find, or at least to find twice, <laughs> uh, which I'm like, yeah, yeah. The thing that they learn while they're there is that because Jelly Baby, because of the location it occupies, it's been stopping these two countries from going to war yeah. this whole time by a sheer matter of existence. Like there's something there they don't need to fight over. Now that it's gone, these two countries are going to war Must because go to war. Cause the other side is going to attack. So I guess it's just inevitable. No one really wants yes, to. Yes, because someone stole someone's queen and they can't remember which one it was which. And wooden, I, wooden pigs and... Yeah. <laughs> you reminded me of that guy who tells the story of the the Sortian War. Yeah. And just the... Like, he's like your drunk granddad at Christmas trying to tell you the story of the first Christmas the family had together. And it's just yeah. rubbish. And he remembers some bits and he gets the names wrong and he can't quite pull it all together. And then at the end, someone goes, 
Got it. Word for word. Well done, mate. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he's someone, the storyteller, like that's yeah. his thing. And they're like, oh, sheer poetry. Like, that's, no. I mean, that's the whole joke, but it's just so painful, particularly like as someone who works as a storyteller. Yeah. It was very oh, painful to read. Like, yeah, storytelling is my jam. And, and like when yeah. I see someone stumbling like that, even if it's on the written page, I go, I found I found this part of the book was the hardest for me because I had to go and research a whole bunch of like there were so many names and so many uh, uh, people in, introduced in a very short amount of time. That's true. Uh, that to get a lot of the references and get a lot of the jokes, I literally had to have book open and then Wikipedia just going, "Who are you referencing here?" Yeah, and what's the joke? I, like I get the, I get the um the the wooden horses. That's fine. Yeah, and stuff. Uh, and I and I get. You know, you know, someone stealing someone's uh, queen, and then and then wars starting because of that. But I think there was a lot of jokes in there that went over my head just because oh, I didn't yeah. have time to to research everything. Well, I don't think most people know about Zeno's paradox, for example. Yeah, these mm. days, you know, it's not the famous one. It's a weird. I mean, it's top three. <laughs> yeah, sure. in in the paradoxes. Mm, I don't know about that actually. <laughs> well, because one of the points of Zeno's paradox is that it was argued that it wasn't really a paradox and it was nonsense, which it is. This is a lot of time and effort to spend on a joke about something most people won't know what it is, Terry. Mm. And I enjoyed the little comment about war at the symposium where there's a guy called Antiphon who's kind of like, oh, well, it was all a long time ago. Like, we took their their queen. But, like, if that's not a big deal. Like, love is a thing. And they go, no, no, it was the other way around. They took our queen. They're like, and he's like, those bastards. Let's <laughs> kill them immediately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. So it's just. <laughs> uh, yeah, very oh, sadly relevant in yeah. our current times. Everyone's sort of telling Tepic, really, there's no way for you to get back anyway. There's no point. Yes. Uh, and that's when Chitta shows up in his ship. Yeah. And he's like, hey, you should come with me. In his massively opulent, but secretly very quick ship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. He's just a humble merchant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for uh, varying degrees of the word humble. Yeah. And and it's a, <laughs> and merchant. And it's this is the point where it got a bit Star Wars for me. And I went, he's flying the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he's it's it's a it's a ship where you go, well not so much a hunk of junk, it's, it goes sort of goes the other way. It goes, Wow, it's an opulent barge, it's overladen, it's not gonna go very quickly and stuff. But they go, Well, when you look at it, there's a bunch of places where you can't quite figure out where you could fit some more cargo there. Hang on. What, what, that seems like an, an extra bit right there. And hang on. Is that a, a ramming spear at the bottom of the ship? And if you took everything off it, it'd go very quickly. And, yeah, and that's, yeah. that's where I sort of got that from. I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is the Millennium Falcon and he's Han Solo. Yeah. And well, you know that Han Solo would also have a closet full of deftly repaired clothes. Yeah. That all the sword swipes or the lightsaber swipes have been quickly patched up. Probably by Chewy. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what he's bandoliers for. He's got a, like, knitting uh, accoutrements. <laughs> oh, like Captain Patchett. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, famous cosplay repairman. But he uh, wouldn't need to ever carry thread because he could just use his fur. Oh, true. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's very clever. Oh, but, you know, the Star Wars thing's very apt, too, because not only is Chita Han Solo, but clearly um, Tepic and Tracy are Luke and Leia, <laughs> <laughs> who have an, an ill-advised bash before, or indeed in this case, after finding out the yeah, and brother oh. and then Chita has a bit of a go for Tracy. Yeah, although I was quite, it was it, that sort of became a thing because in a few of the other books we've read recently, there's been this thing where two characters kind of get together, and it's just because of narrative imperative, really. Like, there's not, we've not been sold on the chemistry between them. And there's no, we you hardly even see them interacting, really. Mm, yeah. Mm. 
But when he asks Tepic if they're together, he says no. And he doesn't sort of say no, but secretly thinks yes. He just goes, oh, no, 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 no. Um, but he doesn't really know. I don't think he knows why he says no so quickly. Oh, but there's that great scene, though, with Chitter's first mate on the ship. Yeah. yeah. He's, got, he's got the interesting tattoos. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And uh, we were talking about, in the last episode, we were wondering if the, how there would be pornography on the Discworld. Well, now we know. Yeah. We know it's exactly how. tattoo form. On yeah. Alphonse. Alphonse. We oh. later get to use as a resource for the... The ladies in training. That's right. He he gets uh he gets poked and prodded like a on. textbook. Oh. Yeah, and he's such a sweetheart. He's embarrassed about it. It's oh. not it's not for ladies to see. <laughs> and they're like, well, how do you think they made the images, mate? And really? she keeps saying you can see the yogurt, and I was like, oh no. Yeah, that's uh. not. And then there's one where she goes, oh, that's the blah 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 blah. That one's physically impossible, and then just moves on <laughs> to the next one. Like, it's from oh. a different book, not the one that her great 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 grandmother posed for. Yeah. But you know, this is this is where we're we're on the sort of home stretch of the book now, um, and it all comes to a head because Chitta says, "Well, you should just come with us." And and uh, Tepic explains to him what's going on. You know, my whole uh, country has disappeared into a crack in in the dimensions. It's vanished. And he goes, "So you're still king, but your country doesn't exist anymore." He's like, "Yeah." He's like, "Hmm." But it will technically still exist, but no one could get in or out of it. He's like, "Yeah." He's like, oh, that'd be a good tax haven. Yeah, and within like. A paragraph or two has mapped out Tepic's entire life. Like, yeah. he, oh, you'll come work for my father, and you'll sit on the board, and we'll use you as a tax haven, and you're the king, so we can get around a whole bunch of stuff, and we'll go to make more pork, and we'll do, you know, we'll get into more commerce, and <laughs> uh, and going. Oh, okay. Is this the way the book's going to go? Are we just going to forget about the kingdom, and you're going to go yeah. on and and make some cash? Yeah. Um, but then he has that moment on the deck after he's a bit drunk. I, I, I thought he might have been drugged. Do you think he got drugged by Chitter? Because he suddenly passes out, and I'm, and I at that point I didn't remember what happened next, and I was like, "Oh, Chitter's drugged him. He's going to like kidnap him to make sure he he does go through with this whole tax evasion plan." But then he wakes up just as the ship is about to leave. And goes, no, I've got to go back. And he mm. jumps out over the side. I think it's a good theory, but I think Chitter as a character, to me, he would do it with mind games and convincing. Cause, like, mm. I don't think he would, he'd be the kind who, like, kidnaps you and forces you onto the board. But I don't know. Because like, he's, he's freshly out of school. Like, he's like only, like, three months out of the Assassin's Academy. He could make... So he's like surprisingly accomplished for a small amount of time. That's true. And, and, they, and they do actually make a lot of reference to the fact that um, he is a merchant uh, who is basically hunting pirates. Hmm. Uh, so, like, yeah. that's why they've got all this stuff. Is that, like, you know, they are, you know, they keep attacking us because we look like we're an opulent trading yeah. ship. And who then, will bully the bullies? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then we kick their ass, take all their stuff, give everyone else the option to jump overboard or join. Um, and you know, and that's why we're doing so well. Yeah. Which sounds like quite a public service, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's definitely, like, he's a, again, he's Han Solo. He's a bit of a rogue. He doesn't play by the law, but he's he's essentially a good guy. Is it chaotic good? Yeah. Chaotic good, yeah. yeah chaotic good. <laughs> or chaotic neutral, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, this is where, you know, he jumps over the side of the boat and mm-hmm. he swims back to shore and he gets you bastard back from the camel dealer he left him with. He heads off back to the and and like you mentioned earlier, he deliberately doesn't feed any uh, you bastard any water, so that he will hopefully because find his way to the water in the that, kingdom. That vision of oh, who was it that found cuffed, cuffed? That's right. There's the legend that uh, he's a camel herder, and the, and the and the camels find the water where there was none previously, even though surely no one has missed 300 square miles of 
fertile valley, mm. but the camels find the water, and this is where the the bullshit magic comes in for me, mm. where I just go, really. Yeah, because it's it's clear that nobody knows that camels are the greatest mathematicians. Yes. Yeah, because they've got that whole thing when they introduce you, bastard, about how camels deliberately hide their intelligence because mm. they don't want to be used. Mm. So they're just quietly intelligent and live their lives quietly, which is the same theory about how we're not waiting for AI to take over and become like sentient. Like it already is. It's just waiting until we're we're <laughs> cool with it. <laughs> like, until we're ready to handle that. Right. That's kind of okay. like camels are like the AI that already exists. What it's- do you know, Liz? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, but yeah, that's, um, that's when he, he goes through the dimensions, but he doesn't quite get to the right one because mm. you bastard gets the very complicated equation just slightly wrong. Mm. And they end up in another dimension guarded by the Sphinx. By the Sphinx as the- well, not a Sphinx. It's only one. Only one. There's just one. Um, there's lots of statues of it, but mm-hmm. there's only one real one, mm-hmm. uh, and it's got its riddle. They always get his nose wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Tepic kind of defeats the riddle by just telling the Sphinx that it's a dumb riddle, basically. Because it is. It's the it's the one where what has four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, three mm-hmm. legs in the evening, yeah. and it's man because of babies and feet and, and walking sticks. And, yeah. And he's like, oh, but like... If we extrapolate from a life that's 70 years, like mm-hmm. maybe like the first, like baby, they're your baby for 20 minutes. So maybe like 20 minutes. So it's not morning. It's 20 minutes after midnight. And I've seen people with two walking sticks. So that doesn't quite work I either. I like the fact that yeah. the Sphinx also starts filling in bits as well. Yeah. So he feels like he's helping. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just, I like that because he talks about how, uh, you know, it's a certain amount of dramatic analogy is allowed in these things. And he's like, that's rubbish. But it also echoes back to something that's said right near the start of the book um, where they say a metaphor, i.e., a lie. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, well, that's like what this riddle is. Yeah. You know? It's metaphorical, but that means that it's just factually very dodgy. I, I like the fact that he does break that down and, and it shows how stupid it is. Mm. And then does that very pratchety thing where you went, right. So we've got about 30 seconds before he figures out <laughs> what's happened. And then sort of gallop away. Let's get out of here. <laughs> yeah. And they get out and. Because yeah. he asked him the riddle again, the same riddle but mm. rephrased with all of the caveats. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. But he gets through there and he gets back to the kingdom. And inside the kingdom, the gods are just messing about. The um, Literally just messing about. Yeah. They don't know, they're just knocking stuff over, <laughs> kicking over houses. It's like they're drunk. I, I think I wrote in my notes they're NQR. They're just not quite right. <laughs> <laughs> they're like when you go into like a, a $2 shop and they don't have real Lego, but they've got the Lego that says Space War and it's clearly a Batman. But you're looking at it yeah. going, this is, looks kind of... It's clearly made using some of the real moulds, but it's not quite right. Yeah. And this is what the gods felt like to me. They're just... They're not, there's something not quite right about them. And Dios is having a similar reaction. Yeah, he hates it so much. Because I, he made them up. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, he did. He made yeah. so many of them he's, up. He's like, I didn't invent you to be like, this act the way that I wrote it down, like... Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then I, I, I made it up in my head and then I told the followers and they believed in that. And I think that's that's part of the reason why they are not quite right is because he's invented so many of them that the belief is spread so thinly through the whole... Like when you've got a pantheon of 20 gods, well, you can have a pretty good idea of what they're all like. When you've got a pantheon of 4,000 gods, you're like, mm. well, there's just a bunch of names and vague features, really. You've suddenly got gods of fireplaces and gods of... The small wind that you have after pizza, <laughs> and of getting things stuck in the in the in drawers. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> the spatula gets they get stuck in drawers. And- yeah. yeah, and I mean this is a, it's something that 
uh, Pratchett revisits in a couple of other books because belief creates gods rather than the other way around in the Discworld then, you know, if you believe in anything, then there's a god of it. But at the same time, the mummies have, like, been releasing the older mummies from their pyramids, and there's a whole bunch of them. It's a family reunion. Yeah, because there's a lot of them. Oh, yeah, there's loads. smashed open the necropolis as well. So all the servants and the uh, the cartographers and the, and the other people who made pyramids for the older uh, pharaohs and stuff, they're yeah. all rising up. Yeah. Oh, I think my favorite bit of that is when... Uh, I think it's when he lets out his grandfather and he says, I hate pyramids. And he goes, you don't hate pyramids. And he says, no, I do. I'd rather go and be buried at seas. No, you don't hate pyramids until you've been inside one for a thousand years. And you're mm. like, okay, yep, that, that's fair. That's, yeah. I'll, I'll, pay, I'll pay that. The priests by now, um, well, there's some strife going on among the priests because we haven't, we haven't mentioned Kumi yet. Yeah, because Kumi, like, he's built up so much and then he just sort of is... He's a bit of nothing, isn't he? Yeah. But you think he's going to go somewhere, but he's, he's introduced he's, so he's, late in the book. He's the sort of the, the late usurper who you think is going to suddenly be, become another plot twist yeah. at the end. Or potentially die horribly to show how awful Dios is. And then neither of those things actually happen to him. Because Kumi's mm. kind of like someone who has read The Art of War but has taken it all very literally, so he can't <laughs> apply any of the principles unless they're literally happening directly in front of him. For example, Kumi would probably be baffled by section 5, line 7. There are not more than five musical notes, yet the combination of these five give rise to more melodies than can ever be heard. An element of dramatic analogy is to be expected. So, like, he thinks he's, like, a mover and a shaker and a wheeler, a dealer. He mm. goes, oh, yeah, I've identified, like, some allies with this priestess and we're going to... And when the yeah. moment comes, he just he can't do anything. He delivers the worst, like, line to all the... Is it the ancestors or the gods he's doing? Whoever it is, oh, he yeah. does a terrible job of it. And, and they, so they yeah. say it's going to go down in history as like one of the all-time worst first lines to mm. say to someone. Yes, yeah. the pharaohs, and so it, yeah, because yeah. it's some brazen ghouls or something along those lines. Oh, and, yeah, and they, and they go, what, what, what did you say? <laughs> and it gets, it gets, oh, I just meant to go. No, 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 say that again. And they go, oh no, and you just see him crumbling. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I thought I thought he was going to have a much more interesting story arc and while that's all going on um the mummies have sort of opened up the tomb of cuffed and gone in there and they're like wait a minute it's empty except there's like a pillow in here (laughs) what's going on and they can't read the writing because it's too ancient for them but then um gurn or deal i forget which one has the idea uh i think it's gurn the Mm. younger one is like oh but we know some people who would and he goes yeah but i can't speak to them he goes yeah but then they can speak to their grandchild and they can speak. And they, so they had this like line of whispers. Yeah. Yeah. Pharaoh's whispers is so good. Conga line of mummies whispering in each other's now defunct ears. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's like a big game of telephone where it's not quite the right translation, (laughs) but it kind of gets the idea across. I thought that was really cute and lovely. It's sort of quite disjointed. uh, But then they read out the the person's name Mm. at the end. They don't on the page, don't read it out. They whispered in his ear and he goes, what? And then he realizes yeah. what's been going on for 7,000 years. Um, mm. Well, I did like when one of the older mummies goes in there to look and they ask him what it's like. And he says, it is spooky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like spelt with Y's instead of I's. I thought that was great. Uh, it was very cute. Oh yeah, the different, ty- like, the different phraseology of the mummies to show this passage of time is yeah. pretty mm. good. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> Um, and uh, and Tepic talks to the Tarklufs and realizes that you know he's going to have to 
um, earth the pyramid for want of a better term and let it flare off all its energy and hopefully that will reverse what's happened and and reopen the kingdom because the thing he Um, did learn was what the flares were time is being used up as a commodity which is why things are so set in the past there and the flare offs and then burning their excess time that's why they don't have plumbing that's why there's never any change time almost stands still yeah, in Jelly Baby. Because so. all, all the new time gets sucked up by the pyramids mm. and they're just living recycled time. Pyramid power. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they make several references to pyramid yeah. power where you build a little pyramid and you put your, you know, razor blades inside it and you leave them there and they're supposed to get sharper. Uh, and people really believe that that works. But surely that's inefficient. Like, you have to leave them for quite a while. Like, you just sharpen them. Yeah, just get a it. whetstone. Yeah. <laughs> like, just or, sharpen them. Or buy more. Or mm. buy more. I mean, look. These, either of those is a more practical solution. <laughs> but I did like the idea that the reason that they seem to make things sharper is that they actually regress them through time to the point where they were sharper. Where they were sharper. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and there's that footnote about how someone says, like, that would that'd put a sharp edge on a rolling pin. And you're like, well, it wouldn't actually because this is how it really works. And you're like, oh, yeah. And that's all going on. And, he, yeah, he gets, he's got to cap it. So he starts making his way across the kingdom. But somehow the gods kind of notice him and they think he's up to no good. But then the mummies give him a, a hand. They they make they form a human pyramid, yeah. which I thought yeah. was great. Yeah. yeah, with all the relatives forming the base and they get up and up and up and they and they basically manhandle him up the pyramid. Yeah, onto yeah. the top. Which is a callback to earlier where he's like climbing out of the bedroom and there's all these bar reliefs of his family members. And so he says he literally got a leg up from his family like oh, okay. he's climbing on them to get out of the window yeah. so i thought that was a nice callback and there was that thing about how he didn't want to just leave because he is the base of an upside down pyramid from all of these people so like it's oh, kind yeah. of cool that it gets flipped up and around yeah so that he is freed of that in a way because of the people that were initially trapping him he does he gets up to the top uh, is there a uh one of the gods goes to slap him down is it yeah the crocodile one? is it is it Hit? No, I think it's hat. Yes, the one that, the, the, the statue that, that no one likes. Jokes about all the way through. Uh, yeah, and it's at the top of page two hundred fifty-eight in my edition. Anyway, uh, it says a bad hat if ever I saw one, and I was like, see another evil hat, <laughs> <laughs> another one. Uh, he doesn't have a, a actual capstone, but um, he found out from Tarkos that while they traditionally do this with Electrum. Um, because it has to last for a long time. That steel would probably do just as well just the once. Yeah, if you mm. only have to do it once, it'll be fine. So he's standing on top of it with his dagger, and that lets it flare off. But yeah, it flares off the energy, and the pyramid just goes backwards, and everything's undone. But, uh, but the way they phrase it is like, you know, he's asking, how do you kill a pyramid? Yeah. Uh, and potentially an entire way of thinking as well, which is quite a gig for an assassin. When we uh, we go back to outside the weird sealed off dimension and jelly baby's back to normal um, by that time there's a whole row of wooden horses on both sides of the effete sortian <laughs> and, lines uh, they clearly knew that this has worked once before yeah and think that the other side is so stupid that they'll, that, fall, for that they'll fall for it again but they've both got wooden horses <laughs> so they're both in the wooden horses going well they're going to take our wooden horses look at over them and those wooden horses we're not stupid enough to fall for that. And just in this weird stalemate. Yeah, that's so weird. 
Uh, and there's the the young guy. There's another pun name. The young guy's name is Auto Q. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who's it's clearly a pun on Autolycus. I also oh, thought yes, clearly. Yes, well, yes, clearly. I, clearly, yeah. clearly I thought it was because he was delivering messages. Well, that also. <laughs> yeah, but he's. I don't know. He was. Well, that bit because he's the one that they're going to send no back idea to. Why he was called Auto Q? Well, because Autolycus is a character from Greek myth. I'm sure it is. Uh, but he's. Um, <laughs> Classic. But also, yeah, he's taking messages. Um, someone else's messages. He's reading them to someone else. So it's yeah. very fitting. But he he's the one they're going to send back to Phoebe to say, hey, you better tell the army to show up. And then they show up just in the nick of time. But mm. it gave me a very Gallipoli vibe. Because I, I, any moment I thought he might say, what are your legs? <laughs> Steel springs. It's like, no. Well, they had that scene where um they had a soldier from each side um, before the camel sprinted off towards the Sphinx. Mm. Yeah. And then they had that sort of, oh, well, war tomorrow. Oh, so it's a shame. It's a, kind of like that um that Christmas amnesty that they talk about. Yeah, they're the quite often, yeah. where they play the football. soccer match. And- yeah. And back yeah. to the trenches. Yeah, it was kind of depressing where they're both like, well, I guess this is what we got to do, um, which is kind of a recurring theme about war in, in a lot of Pratchett's books where he's like, well, it's pointless. but And, and the people on the front line know that, mm. but they're not in charge. Um, but the war gets called off because now there's a country in the way. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Tepic is back on the throne, but he really doesn't want to be there. Yeah. They, um, so Kumi is the new person in charge because no one knows where Dios is. Yeah, Dios has mysteriously vanished. That's yeah, so, right. So they say Dios didn't make it because he was quite close to a lot of the pyramid exploding and coming down. And they think mm. he's just been squished. And, yeah. But I, I, I struggle to figure out kind of Tepic's motivation a little bit at the end here i'm like what is it that he wants like he doesn't want to be king he doesn't want to be an assassin he doesn't like killing people yeah so what is he where is he going like he could you know what he's you know what he's doing he's gonna be david carradine he's gonna <laughs> he's, he's gonna, gonna, gonna walk kung, he's gonna kung fu it he's gonna walk the earth <laughs> or lassie as you if, you know he's just the gonna, littlest hobo yep he's just gonna walk the earth and and wherever he ends up is where he is needed to be he doesn't want to be king no he's been a god he knows that he's no good as an assassin because he can't kill anyone. And he just goes, yeah, I'm just going to abdicate because I can do it because I'm the king and I can say I'm abdicating and you can't say no because I'm the king yeah. and I make you the king. And then, you know, yeah, hands are free and off I go. But he's like, oh, I have to find someone to be the king. I have to find someone who's, ro- you know, also royal. Had that dream. Had that dream. And Tracy's like, oh, yeah, you mean the one with all the cows in it? He's like, yeah, that's the one. But where am I going to find someone who's seen that dream? What? <laughs> <laughs> Real, like, you know, double take moment. He's, he's basically just goes, tag, you're it, and runs away. Yeah. Yep. Like, she doesn't want it either. You're Pharaoh now. Um, and then she chases after him because, you know, the, he won't stay. And it's like the queen says you have to stay. And he's like, no, nah, I'm out of here. And she follows him. And that's where we get that weird scene that we alluded to earlier where yeah. she said, but I need you. And that that really came out of nowhere for me. Yeah. Because she wasn't with him like for a lot. She was off on the boat for a bunch of when she, all the stuff was going out down. With Chitter talking about getting rolled up in carpets. Yeah. She and Chitter yeah. are a much better like team, I think, for getting stuff done. They're going to come up with some sort of plan. Like they will rule it well, like, romantic or not. Yeah. For me, it sounds like, as I ended off the book, that she was going to be a great queen. Totally. Because mm. uh, she understood that everything needed to move forward. She had the best companion in Chitter to go, hey, you know what? If you need to move some stock through and you need to make some money and we need to make some money, let's do it together. Yeah. This can work out for both of us. And yeah. she can tell Kumi to nick off. Like He's like, oh, we got to do this, the ritual, the second narrative. She's like, I'm having a bath. 
Yeah. See ya. Yeah. Uh, and send them in to talk to me while you're having your bath. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's sort of like, he, he thinks he's going to be the next Dios and he's clearly not. No. At least he won't have to do the job for as long as Dios did. Yeah. But also they talk, because uh, we get it through, like you said before, we get through the camel's eye view of their conversation that, that, that Tracy and Tepic have before he leaves. And he just says a decision was reached and it sort of implied a decision was reached that they're not going to get married anyway, even though they're brother and sister. And you're like, is that the decision that was reached? I like that just seems it was a bit perplexing and it was sort of a bit of a weird ending. To to quote Star Wars again, it's a, you know, a bit of a kiss between brother and sister and you go, oh, okay. Right. And you know that at this time, like they're. Yeah. Yeah. And chased by camel standards. Oh, just yeah. weird. Just weird. Like, you know how slobbery camels are, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let's oh. um, just imagine it's... No. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, um, but then we get to the, like, the, the ending ending of the book, which is when we find out what happened to Dios. Because hmm. he hasn't been squashed or left behind in a weird dimension. He's been sent back in time. 7,000 years to the beginning of Jelly Baby where he can just see Cuffed and his camels coming over the crest into the valley. And I, look, how what did, how did you feel about the ending? I like it because it's tidy, it's but not, also it doesn't quite make sense. Oh, it's not but it's tidy. kind of like this tiny loop that's sort of going on over here while like, the future goes on this way. This it, is going to be a real dope question. Is he Cuffed? Or like, where did, where did Cuffed no, go? Because like, there's no one in Cuffed's tomb. He is not Cuffed. No, no, he, no he, so he's... Because uh, he sees Cuffed, but yeah. there's no one in Cuffed's tomb, so I don't I know, understand I don't, that. I don't quite understand where Cuffed goes. Or was there never a Cuffed? Well, there is, there is a Cuffed because he sees all the camels coming over the horizon. Is Cuffed in there with the camels? Like, on, like, me, there's a cuff from the dream. Mm-hmm. But that might not necessarily be a real one because that's a dream manifestation of a thing. So, mm-hmm. No, because he says down the slope, after the camels, his ragged family trailing behind him was a small brown figure waving a camel prod. Mm. So that's cuffed. So where is he now? Like, cause yeah. like, well, And also the, uh, mm. the snakes on his staff are now eating their tails. They weren't eating their tails initially mm. so is this the first time that he's gone back well, for seven thousand only years? be one time that it happens like this is the thing is where does dios begin this is this is a um, a bootstrap paradox because it's not clear where dios begins because he goes back in time and becomes the start of dios but by the time he's in the present of the story seven thousand years later um he's been there the whole seven thousand years yes so where did he come from because then he goes back and I mean, like there's a loop there, there where there's no start so for he- dios there's no origin for him. So, so his start is he wakes up in the swamp and the camels are coming over. And that's his start. And yeah, in but, the beginning but of the book is also he wakes up in but the... But that's not his start because he already existed for 7,000 years before that and then went back in time to back where he's supposed to start. Yeah, but he's so, so fatigued and tired all the time. Like yeah, he, he doesn't like, remember. Yeah, and... But, like, I can't remember things from last week. I mean, if I was alive for 7,000 years, you could convince yourself that you mm. hadn't lived this before. That was all a distant dream. Like, a couple of centuries in, you'd be like, oh, no, that's not true. That's ridiculous. Oh, no, look, I yeah, that much, like, him not remembering, I'm totally fine with. But the problem is, where does he physically come from? Because he was an old man at the seven, at the start of the Jelly Baby Kingdom. Correct. He's 7,000 years 
recycled, recycled by the end of it. Yeah, because he goes in and he recycles his time inside the pyramid. Right. Um, and then he goes back in time to start again. But when, when was he born and grew up to become the old man who was a priest? Like maybe that he, part of his life doesn't exist. Maybe he never was born. Maybe he just is like the gods are. Like they weren't, that they were invented mm. for a purpose and so was Dios. Because Dios, if he has the power to like make, yeah, like it's. It's kind of like, again, that crazy theory that Shakespeare never yeah. wrote his plays. A time traveler gave them to him from the future uh, and then told him when to release them. Like, as in, like... Yeah, Google did that. Google went yeah. back in time. Oh, and, God. No, look, but I... Like, but I, but there is that point of, like, you know, that he never noticed before that the snakes now eating their own tails and stuff. Yeah. So is now he cursed to do this forever? Well, Does the disc world only exist in 7,000-year blocks and it just keeps resetting well, we know that it continues on after oh okay, okay so just jelly baby does that bit mm. of or jelly, old jelly baby just keeps going around in a cycle while there's a new one that's that splinters off yeah, yeah after that so like there's a that separate sort of, world yeah i guess that could be it yeah um it's still, I still think hint, it's not clear. Multiverse and I, stuff. I, and I still think it's a paradox that doesn't make sense, rather than a neat time loop that kind of does. But I, like, if we draw a diagram, I'm gonna, oh god, <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I'm going to let it go because I think that it's still emotionally satisfying, even though I think it doesn't make logical sense. I'm actually um, going to draw a diagram, so I kind of. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just worried. Like, and the, the the shitty thing about it is that I don't think Dios is a good person. I don't think he's a villain, but I don't think he's a good person. And I feel like yeah, he's going to wake up and go, oh. I'm going to make this work this time. Because mm. if you get your 7,000 years over. Yeah. Well, I mean, but that's that's it. That's the end of the book. What do we? How do we like pyramids? You know, we were a little bit surprised. We, I mean, we, you should tell this story, Liz, because it's your story with the, the guy who approached you while you were reading it in the street. Oh, I, um, I embellished a little bit. It was actually um, uh, in a cafe, um, but it was his favorite. Um, I was reading it and he pointed out that it was his absolute favorite Discord novel which i thought was surprising because up until before that i'd heard mostly disdain or dismissal and at that point i was quite early in it so i wasn't sure what i thought then the deeper into it i got i was like oh this is very good i'm actually really enjoying this so i kind of remembered it being kind of a bit whatever but then as i was reading it i was like actually this is great i'm really enjoying this i mean there's still some things about it that i'm you know less excited about like i think it's weird that there's no villain that there's no real crisis until you get like halfway through like there's no sort of threat um and then you still get to the end and there's still no villain and you don't really know where the hero's gone and i'm not really sure what his motivation is most of the time but i still really enjoyed it and it's still very emotionally satisfying and and exciting and very funny there's so many good gags so i really liked it a lot more than i thought i would i'm sad we never see any of these people again i would be interested to see, for example, where Tudor ended up, because that would be a book on its own, I think. Yeah, I think I think that's the reason why this book isn't higher on my list, is because I think there was a lot of good characters that weren't used later on. Because mm. he really, he churns through a whole bunch of different stuff in this book. And I go, okay, so you've brought up a lot of good ideas, and we never touch on them again. We never touch on these characters again. Yeah, we do uh, touch on a lot of similar ideas in yes, small in, gods. in small gods and like you know, and belief and and uh, and religion and that sort. Mm. Of, that's fine, but uh, it's middle of the pack for me. It's very funny. It required mm. me to do a lot of research. Like I couldn't read this book and just go, oh yeah, I know what he's talking about. I needed to stop. I needed sure. to go and look something up and go, oh, you're referencing that. Fine, move on. So in, in sewing, there's a thing you do when you get a new pattern where you sew a practice one. 
but um, you can go two routes. You can make it out of terrible fabric that you're never going to wear or you make it out of okay fabric so that if it turns out all right, you can still wear it and it's called a wearable muslin mm-hmm. because muslin is the fabric you traditionally make these out of. Um, to me, this book is kind of like that. It's a experimentation in ideas that I think probably turned out better than expected and make a good cohesive book, but a lot of the ideas then get reused and made into more viable dresses in later books. So it's kind of like the wearable muslin yeah, cool. of the Terry Pratchett Discworld series. Yeah. I think I'm I'm kind of a bit on the same page. I, I don't really want to rank them too much. No. But I did look up a few rankings, um, and it actually features quite highly in a lot of them. Like in some rankings of all of the books, it's like number three or number four. So there's a lot of people who really rate it very, very highly. Because it includes a lot of things that I really enjoy. It has time travel. It has paradoxes. Mm-hmm. It has just like well, the assassin school stuff. It just packs in a lot and also has some very good footnotes. So, oh, yeah. so many yeah. good footnotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 28 footnotes. Like, very that's good. quite a lot. Like that's one every 10 pages in my edition. And I think one of the footnotes takes up three quarters of one page. Yes. <laughs> yes, it and does. Footnotes within footnotes. Yeah. That happened at least twice in this there's, one. There's two of them in this book, yep. Did you have a favourite footnote, Richard? Well, it's it gets echoed a lot through a lot of Pratchett's books and stuff. But it's uh, it was said that life was cheap in Ankh Morpork. This was, of course, completely wrong. Life was often very expensive. You could get death for free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's very good. Uh. One of mine's right near the start, which is where... Uh, they're talking about if you're at the assassin school and you do the wrong thing, they might take away some of your privileges. And then the footnote is breathing for a start, <laughs> which I thought was great. It's so good. I really liked one of the ones that has a footnote in itself, which is the one about the fastest creatures on the disc, where they talk about the um, the Pazuma and the .303 bookworm. They were pretty good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, was very cute. But yeah. also very sad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed this one when they're explaining early on what Jelly Belly is. And so like the main text is... Jelly Belly was a small, self-centered kingdom. Even its plagues were half-hearted. All self-respecting river kingdoms have vast supernatural plagues, but the best the old kingdom had been made, able to achieve in the last hundred years was the plague of frog. And then the footnote goes, it was quite a big frog, however, and it got into the air ducts and kept everyone awake for weeks. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that. That was great. Because that's exactly the kind of plague they would have. Oh, yeah. The Mighty Deeds of um, oh, that Tepesheim was my other, and the 27. That yeah. is my other favourite. Yeah. Would you like to read it? Uh, it's yeah. on this page for me, I've, if you like. Got it, I've got it here. Um, uh, he turned to the wide courtyard between the base of the pyramid and the river, which was lined with statues and stelae, commemorating King Tepesheim's mighty deeds, and pointed. The carvers had had to use quite a lot of imagination. The late king had had many fine attributes, but doing mighty deeds wasn't among them. The score was, number of enemies ground as dust under his chariot wheels, zero. Number of thrones crushed between his sandaled feet, zero. Number of times world bestrode like Colossus, zero. On the other hand, reigns of terror, zero. Number of times own throne crushed beneath enemy sandals, zero. <laughs> Faces of poor ground, zero. Expensive crusades embarked upon, zero. His life had basically been a no-score win. <laughs> that was so cute. I was like, oh, it just really endeared the king to us even more. Yeah. I really liked Tepic's dad. Just and be a seagull. Just yeah. what, what a dude. I was just like, what a nice king. Like, I mean, you know, he's letting Dios run the place and he's probably putting lots of people to death in the king's name, but he's just he's just a nice old duffer, mm. basically. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit useless. He's one of those typically useless dads of fiction who, like, doesn't even remember how old his son is or what he got for his yeah, son's he's birthday. Like, he's, like the, he's like the king in Aladdin. <laughs> yeah. 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 Potters around and gets fed and... 
Yeah, how's everything going? Oh, well, there's troubles. That's nice, dear. And goes off and has a feed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, any other favorite bits or jokes we want to mention before we get onto the questions? I would just be reading the entire book to you. Oh, yes. if, <laughs> it is full of good gags, isn't it? But also, I think that uh, the first quarter of the book, based in the um, Assassin's Guild, is mm. super mm. exciting. Yeah. Like, we don't get that ever again. I want a whole book of that. We see little bits and pieces. We see Tia Taimi. We see a few other from assassins. the Fools Guild as yeah, well. Yeah, from the Fools <laughs> Guild next door. But you don't you don't really get to see a, a, an in depth view of the Assassins Guild. And I think that mm. makes it very exciting. Well, with that, we should probably get on to some questions from listeners because we actually got quite a few. Well, um, we'll go with one that sort of leads in from last episode to start with. This is from Lachlan Kingsford. He asked if we have found a favorite version of the Hedgehog song or the Wizard Staff online yet. Well, I don't have one from online, but I do have one that was officially recorded and released. Uh, there was a soundtrack album for the Discworld called From the Discworld by an artist named Dave Greenslade. And he's a, like, you know, a synth artist. And so it doesn't sound anything like the song would actually sound on the Discworld. Uh, so it's from 1994, this album. And this is, this is the version on that album. Wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A knob on the end. A knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A knob on the end. A knob on the end. A wizard when young has a staff that is small. It's puny and weak, ineffective with all. It grows with his power. Till it stands tall as his frame and his glory expand, as his frame and his glory expand. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A knob on I think the that's end. probably enough of that. So but thank you very much for my new ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can sort that out. Um, and it is, it's, yeah, and it's it's a bit like an old folk song that it does have. It, very few words. And it's a bit shit. I uh, love sh- no, that. No, 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 no. Like, <laughs> uh, I've not got anything against the song, but that guy put zero effort in. Oh, so harsh, <laughs> Richard. You're so mean to Dave Greenslade. Uh, yeah, he's probably dead now. It's fine. Um, yeah. Um, look, I, I also... <laughs> I, no, I don't think he is. No. Um, I, Sorry, um, David. That's the one I know of the wizard stuff. Well, I've got nothing to offer beyond enthusiasm for all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the next question is from Patrick O'Duffy, who asks if we ever wish the standalone stories were more closely integrated into the series, or if they're better as one-offs that flesh out the corners of the setting. Look, my my feeling is I think they're perfectly great as standalones, and and if anything, I kind of wish there were a few more of them, because really there's only a couple. All the other books that go to those weird parts of the Discworld are part of the series you know and you don't necessarily spend that much time in that culture like for example you go to Alkali in sorcery but you only spend about a third of the book there and it's not really about that it's just a excuse for a bunch of silly aladdin jokes and it depends on which one it is like i'm cool with monstrous regiment being just that Mm -hmm. because it was so well contained and it told the story it needed to but there are others that i'd love to see more of because like Arguably, Mort is a self-contained one, even though a lot of characters mm. spin off from that. But like the main, char- the titular character, we never really properly get into the head of. Yeah, it's again. kind of mentioned what happens to them. Yeah, but- we know how it pans out, but we don't get to 
see that character anymore. Yeah, we don't spend time with them. We don't know what kind of, you know, kingly or dukely adventures yeah. um, he and Isabel have. Mm. Yeah. Uh, standalones are fine because we've got so many recurring characters. We've got the City Watch. We've got uh, Vetinari turning up in a whole bunch of different books mm. and stuff. We've got all these amazing characters and stuff. But I do love me a cameo. Yeah, I would have loved to find out what Tepic gets up to next because he's he's kind of a cool character and he kind of he's just it's just a bit weird that he does his one thing and then vanishes. Yeah, into so the cameo air. would be good. Hmm. So just a cameo in the background somewhere. Does yeah. he know he's still like chugging along? Yeah. Or is he? Or did he die hundreds of years ago because this book was set in the past? Oh, is that the next question, Liz? <laughs> Maybe I can. I'm in charge of the order of the questions. Yeah, so. I think that's the next question. Oh, it actually Let's, is naturally the next question. Of course it is. Let's get to it. What um, is the question? So from Paul Patiki, um, there is a school of thought that this was set possibly centuries earlier than the rest of the series. See also Small Gods, but I don't know if this has ever been officially determined. So I don't know where I land on this one because I think there's good argument either way so you'd have to say we were talking about this before Hmm. that Guild of Assassins uh, teachers their names are passed down I know oh no that's not what I'm sorry oh I just say like I know Merciette teaches other people in other books uh, so he would have to be hundreds of years old? Yeah. Well, also, or he could have children who go into the same role as the family business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think Dr. Crucius, they certainly pop up in other books and stuff. So it would have to be like a, a, a mantle passed down. Yeah, but it is, it is a very male-heavy guild or male-exclusive guild. So if they have sons, they'd all have their name. So yeah, it yeah. is very possible. And but because then, they have the whole thing like... If you're the son of an assassin, you get a scholarship. So there is also mm-hmm. that. Very true. But you'd also have to make sure that every one of the Crucius was a doctor as well because he's Dr. Crucius. Not necessarily because the one we've met and the one in the past could have been the only Dr. Crucius and the others could have all just like gone off and okay. done other careers in the middle. Okay. I, look, I think it's the same guy. And I think the other bit of evidence in the book that it's not set many centuries earlier is they discuss what century it is and they mention that it's the century of the fruit no, bat. No, but they correct it that it's the century that, of the cobra. But they know that it's the century of the fruit bat, even if some of them are arguing about it. I think it's the part of me that just loves a good conspiracy theory because <laughs> I would not have thought of this on my own. Okay, yeah. But the fact that it's been offered up as a thing, I'm like, ooh, could it be? And I'm just trying to find ways that it could. And I still think it it could, but also time is funny here. They've yeah. been firing off mm. weird bits of time. So like we don't normally do research during the podcast, but I have just looked this up and Zeno also appears, the same character, in Small Gods, which happens contemporaneously. Like, oh, do you mean Zeno the guy who lives right next to the time loop? He, he, lives, <laughs> he lives in <laughs> Phoebe, he doesn't live in Jelly Baby. So I think that he's pretty close and he came into contact with a guy who came straight out of a place look, and he's range. chasing turtles quite a lot and turtles go quite fast according to Xenu look, yeah. I, Z- did I say Xenu? Uh, Xenu, oh no uh, look, I am going to go with Occam's rolling pin and say <laughs> that it is the same Dr. Cruz uh, that's what I think anyway if you disagree, we'd love to hear from you get in touch, use the hashtag on the social media Pratchat5 tell us, tell us we're wrong Tell, tell, tell us which one of us you think is wrong. Well, I, I think I'm it's... not convinced yet. I'd like to be convinced that it's in the past or that time is weird. Okay. All I right. think that's kind of nice. What, what other questions? We've got a couple more, I think. Yes, we do. So there is, um, how the fuck does my cat get a better media presence than me? From Nick Healy. Nick Healy. Uh, look, Nick, I, I promise you mention you again when there's a character in the books who looks like you. And I, I think that's coming up because you're a devilishly handsome man. 
And uh, are you talking about the ugly cat that turns into a man? Uh, no, I'm talking. That was his cat who we mentioned last time. All right. <laughs> All right. And our final question comes from Tansy Rayner Roberts, who asks, or who says, "I remember being obsessed with the Assassin's Guild school days part of the book." What assassin subject would you be best at, and what would you name your camel? Oh, so what what assassin's guild subject do you think you've got a list of them there, Richard? I do have uh, a list. Um, do you want to hear a couple of them? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So we've got Lord Downey, who's the master of assassins. Merisset teaches strategy and poison theory. Mister Moody does personal grooming, applied pathology. We've got modern languages and music, uh, ancient languages, dance and deportment. Fencing and edged weapons, history, uh, physical education, and uh, Lamados, climbing traps and locks, domestic science and organic poisons, alchemy and metalwork, political expediency, geography, mathematics, traps, and advanced ambush. Um, I think locks appealed the most to me because that seems like something that you could, it's a nice logic puzzle. It's and a you trade. can just, yeah. 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 That makes sense. And there's lots of different kinds of locks. and But I mean, how long is. A subject could that be? That'd be like a term. Oh no! Well, locks are very complicated. There's yeah. heaps of locks. Yeah, there's like five. There's like five <laughs> locks. There's five in locks, the world. Five <laughs> oh, I don't know. Realistically, it would probably be out of that list. Uh, history, unless there's like acting and deportment. You know. Yeah, dance and deportment. Yeah. But pretending to be other people, like surely that's something they teach. Yeah, dance like, and deportment. They get acting lessons, dance, dance don't and they? Deportment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, I could. That would be mine. Clearly. What about you, Richard? Oh, uh, only because I've got a unkempt beard at the moment i have to go personal grooming <laughs> i look you keep that beard very clean no i know i'm clean yeah but i look like i live under a bridge <laughs> i probably do very well at that but also i would like uh fencing and edged weapons oh that would be cool that would that sounds like fun i mean i've done i've done some stage fighting training and yeah. it was great i would give it a go but I feel like if you, if you are fencing with someone, surely you've screwed up as an assassin. That's how you uh, gain their trust. You go and have fencing uh, with these people who are going to uh, later in Hume. Mm. And oh. so you get close to them. True. And then okay. you poison them. You're never actually doing the sword fighting. You're always doing the fencing with the masks and stuff. Yeah. It's a classy activity. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I'll pay And that. then you dance and deport yourself out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. I'll pay that. I'll do it. I'll do it. And on the on the topic of camel names, I thought about yeah. this a bit because like camels are the form of transport there, so they just call what you're saying like while you're traveling. So if I had a camel, I was in that situation. It was my main transport. My camel, based on what I say the most, would have to be nice indicator, dickhead. <laughs> That's a great camel name. <laughs> that is good. Well, to be honest, I wouldn't get on a fucking camel. That's what I like. They are terrifying beasts. I've ridden mm. a camel, and they are terrifying beasts. You're right. Don't ride a camel. I don't want to. I don't want to get on one. Yeah. I think. I think what I would end up happening was like it would be less like you bastard and stuff. It just me just going. Oh come on! <laughs> That's the camel's face. Just, just nothing's happening, and I'm sitting twenty feet up. I don't know how tall they are. <laughs> so no, not that tall. No, no. I think mine would be just like oh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, you know, something like that. Or typical. <laughs> like that would be my camel's name. Typical. Typical. <laughs> We've gone the wrong way. Typical. Yeah. All right, I think that's I think that's it. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Where can people find out more about where to find you? Where to find me? Well, they usually find you doing running trivia, won't running they? Running trivia at the Cornish Arms on a Thursday evening or a Sunday afternoon. Or just hanging out under bridges. Do you ever put Discworld questions in the trivia? I do. Yeah? yeah What's yeah, the yeah. best one that you've asked? Um, well, I, I certainly have asked 
uh, what does a wizard staff have on the end? <laughs> nice. Um, Before we go, we should also say what we're going to be reading next month for the podcast. Now, I'd rather dodge the question, but it is going to be Dodger, our first non-Discworld book. Oh, exciting. And also the first one I haven't already read. <gasps> That'll be exciting. Have you read Dodger, Richard? I have not. Oh, there oh. you go. Well, maybe you want to read it and you can listen to the podcast. I will. I will read it and I will listen along. Has uh, anyone read Dodger? Here's <laughs> the next I'll, question. Lots of people have. Well, <laughs> at least the two of us and our special guest for next month, who is... David Assel. Yes, renowned word lover and crossword maker. Crypto verbalist. There you go. See, I knew you would know the word for that. Please do join us next time for that. If you want to ask us questions about Dodger, read it. Send us to them uh, using the hashtag PrattChat6 because that will be episode six. And if you would like us to answer them on the podcast, get them in by March the 24th. That's when we'll be recording the next episode. And look, we thought we'd also, there's been a few people mentioning that because of the vagaries of when we can record and when we're releasing the podcast, people might like a bit more notice about what's coming up. So the next couple of episodes after that, we will hopefully be reading Eric and Guards Guards. So we're trying to get through the first quarter of the Discworld canon nice. uh, before the end of the year. So um, Eric is crackingly good. Yeah, you're a big fan? Oh, yeah. Eric is, like I would say, probably in my top five. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, there you go. I have not seen it that high in any of the rankings. Today. I really enjoy it. So that's great. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe we'll we'll get your uh, opinion on it at some maybe point. Maybe I'll well. send in some questions. Please hmm. do. <laughs> We do write show notes for every episode of the podcast, and I never remember to mention them. So, And they if, are very good. If we find any errata, if we think we've made any mistakes, or we find any useful information that uh, supplements what we talk about in the podcast, you will find it in the show notes, either in your podcast app of choice, or you can go to the website, ratchetpodcast.com, and look up the episode. They're all written there. Um, and if you find any errors in that, well, you know, too bad. Uh, no, you can let us know. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so thanks again, Richard. And uh, we'll see you next time on Pratchat. Or will we just see you this time again? 7,000 years later. Mios, Dios. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Richard McKenzie. No relation. That's me. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast or on the web at pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat5. Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.